Welcome to episode 10 of Bond by Numbers. Today we are investigating Skyfall, Daniel Craig's third, and thus far, no, not penultimate, is it? What is it? Boys, help me out here. Uh, third? Yeah, it's right. the third. One. Third outing as James Bond 007. Daniel Craig's third outing as James Bond 007. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, this wheel, guys, this wheel that we've been relying on for the selection process really is favoring the Craigs right now. We've done three Craig films in the last four episodes. Yeah. It's kind of like the wheel of morality in Animaniacs. It makes, no, it makes no sense. The reason why it makes no sense is because it doesn't love Roger Moore. And who doesn't love Roger Moore? Well, it's funny you mention that. I've got a little, uh, a little. It's not, it's not a soundbite. It's an interview that Moore did on the release of Skyfall with Time Magazine, where he states that Daniel Craig is the best James Bond that has ever been. He even mentioned, I believe, I didn't add this on our last episode, but we were doing Casino Royale. Um, I, I read that uh, Roger Moore said he, he even bought the DVD of Casino Royale. So he definitely has been a, a Daniel Craig fan from the get-go. There see, you go. see, Roger Moore strikes me as more of a Betamax guy. Right? That's why I was impressed that he probably went out to buy a DVD player mm-hmm. and then the DVD. He probably has a DVD player. Just didn't, he probably didn't, didn't have a Blu-ray player, though. Well, did he say DVD or Blu-ray? He probably he has, D- like, a private fucking cinema, though. Yeah, but they're probably DVDs or old, like, nitroid films or something. Maybe he didn't catch on fire or something like that. Well, then again, he did live, spend most of his time in Monte Carlo, so perhaps he just had a, a cinema that he went to whenever he wanted. Yeah, he, he just lived the life. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? After reading uh, three books on Roger Moore, two written by himself, I can't answer that question. <laughs> what did he do for entertainment? He went to a lot of parties. He socialized, he, spent he a, lot a lot of time of with his family. That's true. Lots mm-hmm. of partying, absolutely. I will. I assume that he has an entire closet full of white sports coats. Is that wrong to assume that? I don't think so. Uh, maybe, a, maybe maybe an entire wardrobe. Yeah. Um, turtlenecks. And later in his life, I didn't see okay. more wearing too yes. many turtlenecks. Yeah. yeah. This is something that our fact checkers just really need to start drilling away on. I you know those what fact, those fact checkers they're they're slacking. I tell you. Mm. Man, we need to pay, we need to. Well, I guess we. I was gonna say we need to pay them more, but I guess we need to pay them at all. But or, say yeah, we need to pay ourselves before we start paying the freaking uh, the, the fact checkers. That's true. Also, in regards to the white sports coat, it would have to be both from the Saint and James Bond, correct? So he would have probably quite a few coats available in that this is, closet. This is true. The one thing he did tend to do, and there is truth to this in his own writing, um, he would often just take the suits from the set. If you know, <laughs> like he would, he would just take the clothes that he was uh, dressed in if he liked it. And oh man, I would not totally right? myself. Mm-hmm. Better than I, it ending up in some museum. Yeah. Just because he decided to take it at that one day and then it becomes famous in the Smithsonian James Bond exhibit for some reason afterwards. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, guys, we're not, we're, not, we're not here to talk about Roger Moore's clothes. No, no. We're, talk, we're here to talk about yeah. uh, Daniel Craig's uh, five o'clock shadow and, and, and tired looking face and yeah. bruised with, with and beaten body. With a amount, a large amount of uh, gray whiskers. Well, the guy's like almost... The guy was in his mid-40s when he was making the movie, so the gray whiskers, I understand. Yeah, I get it. Especially for someone fair-haired like him. Yeah. I just meant, like, more for, like, Bond himself. It was interesting to see, like, you know, white whiskers on a Bond. Mm. Yeah. And going back to Roger Moore, I would take old Daniel Craig over old Roger Moore any day. Absolutely. 
Oh, you would take old Daniel Craig over what? Sean Cora, the 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 view to a kill, Roger Moore. The view to a kill, Roger Moore, exactly. Yeah. Well, do you know what? Why don't we just get this out of the way now? Because it's leading. What you're saying is leading me into something else that I remember reading from that interview. I've just got three quotes here from Moore. Okay. Um, yes. Get it out. Well, it is kind of. It's a good segue, I think, into it. And, and you're touching on stuff that's that's fun to uh, to dredge up. After your good self, the time interviewer asks, "Is Sean Connery still your favorite Bond?" Well. I finished the book three or four months ago, but since then, he's talking about the book he wrote himself. Since then, I went to a screening of Skyfall and I've changed my opinion. I think that Daniel Craig is the Bond. He's quite brilliant. I wrote to Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson and said they've guaranteed Bond another 50 years of life. Well, presumably you've seen the other two Daniel Craig Bond movies. Yes, I thought Casino Royale was tremendous. I thought his action was quite extraordinary. He did more action in the first 30 seconds of the film than I did in 14 years of playing Bond. (laughs) To me, he looks like a killer. He looks as though he knows what he's doing. I look as though I might cheat at backgammon. (laughs) I think you're underselling yourself, says the interviewer, but I'm sure he'll be delighted to hear that. It's really a remarkable franchise, isn't it? I mean, over half the world has seen at least one James Bond movie and more people have walked on the moon than played Bond. I felt a tremendous pride when I saw Daniel Craig and the Queen for the opening sequence of the Olympics. I thought, my lord, what other series of films would be able to get the Queen of England to agree to appear? And uh, it goes on, but that's it. (laughs) Well, for the um, world premiere of Skyfall, um, the Queen and uh, the, the Duke of Edinburgh were present. So I guess that's something. I don't know if they ever appeared for any of Roger's premieres. I don't know. That that's a very good question. I'm sure they. I'm sure they must have. Actually, they must have. When, when we get into the production history in the Cubby's corners for the Moore era, we'll we'll discover. I'm sure that that they did. So Skyfall is really considered, I think, one of the most critically acclaimed James Bond films. It's pretty popular. It came out at the time of the 50th anniversary and in, in uh, 61, 62. So that's 2011, 2012. Um, it was, it was nominated for Oscars. It won Oscars. Um, it was it's definitely, I think, considered probably be the most the popular Bond film of, of, of our time. And I would say, I guess you could say it's almost like the Goldfinger of, of our time. Uh, yeah. Would you agree? Go ahead, Jeff. I heard you'd start in there. Well, I, I would agree with that. It's just such a, it's such a solid film. Again, it's one of those things, where even if you watch it not as a Bond fan, it's a solid like action slash espionage movie but and then even just watching it as a bond film you're like wow this uh this is you know it's got some cohesion it's got some history to it uh and revenge it's you know it makes a really good uh spy movie casserole <laughs> mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of heralding back to the classics yeah, in this exactly. film and some of them some of them are sort of heavy-handed the references and some of them are a little more subtle but, yeah, there's yes. one subtle reference I want to get to later that I okay. really enjoyed myself. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll definitely explore S- Skyfall. You know, we'll we'll we'll, oh, yeah. we'll pick it apart. Well, not pick it apart, but we'll definitely explore in, in a negative way. Yeah, in a positive way. Well, I mean, well, I'm maybe sure negative. We'll, 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 we'll all Howard. Mm. We all have reviews on it and whatnot. Of so, course, of course. But um, I just I just I just think what I was trying to say is is that this film is I remember at the time it came out. And it was a very exciting time because it was I was hyped up before I even saw it that this was going to be the Bond film. You know, you have like an Oscar, you have like um, Oscar nominated director like Sam Mendes um, doing a Bond film with like Roger Deakins, who's like a legend at cinematography for the Coen brothers, for for Mendes and, and other films. 
and you know, you know, you know, taking the helm. And even Roger Deakins, who did the cinematography in the film, he just won an Oscar um, the previous year for uh, Blade Runner 2049, a well-deserved one, in my opinion. Mm. And you can definitely see his style, like all the way through. Very much so. Um, it just it just kind of like just guides you through this journey. You know what I mean? Um, it, it, despite you know what people might say about some parts of the plot or some characterizations and some overhanded, as you say, like fan service. Um, one thing you can't deny is how beautiful the film looks. Well, that's an interesting point. And when I get to the critical reception, I'm going to I'm going to touch on that because not everybody shares your opinion. Really? Well, that's uh-huh. fine. That's mm-hmm. why there's opinions. Yeah, that's why there's opinions. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say though, guys. You know, I'm I'm quite eager to get into this. I know you are as well. But mm-hmm. let's let's just very briefly recap because it's been a few weeks since we've been back here. We last looked at Casino Royale, which was, of course, Craig's first shot at James Bond, a film that we all really enjoyed. And some of what you've already said in preface to Skyfall certainly applies to Casino Royale, its ability yes. to to serve as a standalone action film. It is a uh, a bond for our time. It is. Uh, it is just an impressive film in, in all sorts of ways that stand up outside the franchise, not necessarily needing the tender hooks of the franchise. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. it's one that we all liked. And so following it up here, um, <clears throat> it's quite interesting, isn't it, to see how the actor has evolved a bit? Because I think this is a different Craig to the one we saw before and the one that we saw in Quantum. And I'm just not sure how much of that is script or how much of it is just more comfortable in his shoes now. I think, yes. Yeah, I think it's a good portion of both of those things. Yeah, that's a very good assessment, Jeff. Um, I just want to point out, too, is that when they decided to make Skyfall, Sam Mendes and Craig and the producers, they wanted to basically – they've established everything before in Casino Royale and Quantum and Solace, but they didn't really try to make it an on, a continuing right. uh, story from those two movies, even though with Spectre – that ended up being the case where they wanted to connect them all in that quantum specter kind of sweep. Uh, this particular film is kind of almost like a one, it could have, could really be a one-off in its own way. It could. Um, and, and how it was direct directed and how it was written. Um, it, it, it feels like even though it's, it's part of the, the Craig sweep, as I, as I said, it's also kind of stand, stands on, on its own. And it kind of reminds me of Goldfinger in that way, because you have Dr. Noen from Rush of Love, um, which which are, which kind of set up the whole Spectre storyline back in the '60s, and then you have Goldfinger, which is which which was which, which deals with one villain on its own and mm-hmm. and Bond on his own in his own story and his own um, and and also showing like Connery Craig is again as you mentioned he's comfortable in his shoes now in the role and he he's willing to experiment on it and and try different things and look at Bond in a different way and kind of deconstruct him as an actor. So um, that, that, I think that makes Skyfall very interesting, and I think it's a very good comparison to Goldfinger in that way. Hmm. All right, well... Uh, let's peel back the flesh then on this one, shall we? Guys, where were you when you first saw it? It's only six, seven years old. Um, for my part, I was here, obviously. I was well established in my career over here and married. This was the year of my wedding. And I remember seeing this one twice in the cinema, which is a very strange thing for me to do. It's not, I, I don't often do it because to get to a good cinema, I got to drive away a while as well. But right. um, Sarah and I went to see it uh, the first time, really enjoyed it. 
And then her father, who didn't doesn't get a chance to get to the cinema very much, he he likes it though when he does. We decided to take him out to it because he had heard quite a lot about it, and you know he, he's a he's a film fan himself in a quiet sort of way. So we took him to the cinema, and I can't remember if Sarah's mom was there as well. I want to say yes, I, I believe she was, and that was it. Yeah. So uh, even though she's kind of, she's probably the bigger bigger fan of the franchise you know she's the one who when I was reading the books a few years ago she would be reading them after me just because she wanted to kind of consume something you know as a hobby I guess as she was home and retired and knitting sweaters and whatnot but uh, um, yeah we took them to the cinema to, to watch it and uh, that was the second time through I really liked it when I saw it in the cinema but um, oh, yeah. watching it at home for the purposes of our study was, was a very different experience and it was. as we right. talk as we talk I'll I'll say more about it but but what about you was this one that you guys saw together yeah, yeah we did yeah we, did. we saw it at the AMC theater or whatever it's called now in <laughs> Canada Jesus name um I remember that I I was just I was part of the whole zeitgeist of the movie I remember coming out going yeah that was very impressive and I was I was very blown away by the technical expertise of the mm-hmm. film and I said like this is like someone treating a Bond film like a, a Sam Mendes movie, basically, if, if you think about it. <laughs> um, so I, I really enjoyed, you know, the, the limelight that James Bond was having at the time and, and kind of the rebirth of the character of, in terms of its, of its popularity that Skyfall brought on. Um, I was even so excited about it, too, is that um, I got my dad for, for his birthday. I got him tickets uh, to, uh, to, 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 to like the movie theaters, which is a rare thing for my dad to go to the movie theaters. Just so that he could go see Skyfall, and he went to go, he went, he went to go and saw it um, in IMAX. So he had a, quite the experience. I never saw, I saw it in regular. I didn't see it in IMAX in the, in, in the cinema. Hmm. What would I mean? Did you hear anything about the IMAX? Well, maybe you'll talk about it when you do your production. But this would this have been one of the first Bonds released in IMAX? Yes, that's right. It, it is the first Bond. That sounds about right. For actually. the Bond by numbers, I had uh, number one. I have uh, this is, is one. It was the first Bond film to be in to, to to be released in IMAX. This is certainly a good one to use in IMAX because uh, for all the action scenes and all that kind of stuff, and the audio. Uh, yeah, you know, it would definitely uh, be, I, be a good choice for sure. Yeah, like a, the sec, like after Skyfall, the next big experience in terms of like you know I've seen a seen a film in IMAX. Um, that I had, and by the and again by the same uh, director of photography was uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and they kind of had the same kind of visual experience while watching that film as well. Did did uh, Deacons win for this film? No, he did not. He was nominated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, but uh, he didn't win. No, his first win was for Blade Runner twenty forty nine. All right. Well, well, let's get. And he's been nominated it. like thirteen times, I think, beforehand for like you know, No Country for Old Men. Uh, for other Coen Brothers movies, um, I think he was nominated for um, uh, Road to Perdition as, as well. But I, 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 I got I to double check, though, because I don't know if he was a cinematographer for that movie or not. Okay. Well, yeah. let's get into the production then, Josh. What have you got? Cubby's Corner on Skyfall. Yeah, so the Bond by numbers here, just to give some numbers, uh, 23rd Bond film. It's a third outing for Daniel Craig. Um, the production, or the, uh, sorry, of, of the principal photography was 133 days. Um, 
A big date in terms of the production of Skyfall was November 3rd, 2011. There was a press conference held at the Corinthian Hotel announcing the cast. And this was also 50 years to the day that Sean Connery was announced as Bond in Dr. No. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's, those are the kind of the main numbers there. Directing the film was Sam Mendes, uh, best known for movies like American Beauty, A Road to Perdition, Revolutionary Road. Um, is a very well-known uh, British playwright, uh, director, as well as film director. Um, the screenplay was by Neil Purvis and Jack Wade, and uh, American screenwriter John Logan also came into to the screenplay as well. Um, if you see any interviews on the making of Skyfall, John Logan seems to be on top of the film uh, in terms of how the characters are portrayed, so you can definitely see he was influential. Um, John Logan, for those, uh, he was the writer of uh, another Oscar-winning film called, um, well, not a Best Picture. I'm not trying to say Skyfall is Best Picture winner, but Skyfall did win an, an Academy Award for uh, Best Song uh, for Adele. John Logan, um, he wasn't nominated, but he was the screenwriter for Gladiator. Oh, okay. He was also the head writer, one of the head writers for uh, the Showtime series Penny Dreadful. And if you notice, actually, a lot of Penny Dreadful alumni yeah. are actually appear in, in, in Skyfall and in also Inspector. The Frankenstein. Yeah. Right. Well, at that, at that point, would, would, would they not have been pre-Penny Dreadful? Uh, I would say I think it was after it was only like a year or two after that Penny Dreadful went into production because yeah, right. it, okay. it was only three seasons long so yeah. it would have been right afterwards yeah but um, moving forward um, so Mendes was signed on immediately uh, I think in post-production of Quantum of Solace uh, Craig wanted Mendes to direct but Mendes was hesitant but Craig broached the idea and and Mendes broke down and he watched Casino Royale and he was very impressed by what he saw and what, what, what they could do for the character. And so he decided to join the project. Um, what was their relationship, Josh? Do you like uh, Craig and Mendes? I think there is a, they have a pretty strong relationship. Because um, obviously I think... his, I mean, Craig, Craig wanted to increase his role. Wasn't that part of his contractual kind of stipulation as well? He wanted to have more of a, uh, of a producer, not so much a credit, yes. but more of a, more of a creative role in establishing where his bond goes. And I know that there was that connection with Mendez, but I, I don't know anything about their relationship or their friendship. Yeah, I, I didn't really get into detail on that. Um, Do you know... Hmm if uh, Mendez was connected to Kate Winslet at this time? Uh, he, he was... Well, I'm, I think they... So at this point... They I mean, had just broke up. I, yeah, okay. exactly. They were, on their way, they were 2003 to 2011. Yeah, so this is just after he had broken up with yeah, her. And right. so, yeah, just recently, uh, I guess, departed or parted ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that relationship had ended by 2011 or so. I guess the time he was making Skyfall. So maybe, you know... He wanted just something to, to do after you know his his relationship kind of dissipated. Well, it sounded like he really, really wanted to do a Bond film. He seems like he's a really big fan of Bond. Um, we we did watch a couple of the like a documentary. Yeah, um, becoming Bond. Becoming Bond with him, and 
he seems like a really cool character, a uh, really down-to-earth kind of person. He almost kind of comes off as a really educated fanboy <laughs> sometimes for Bond and that kind of stuff. So it was it was refreshing to watch him. Yeah, you wouldn't notice that he's like this, like, I don't know, this super this, famous this London playwright, yeah. stage director, yeah, film director, all. you know? He, he didn't come off that way at all. He looks like the kind of guy you'd think would be like, you know, a floor manager at like a Chapters or something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> He just seems like a, you know, just a regular guy. Uh, who knows his stuff, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so Craig was ret- returned as Bond, and then they announced at this at the Corinthian Hotel co- press conference that Javier Bardem uh, was going to be playing the role of the villain, Raul Silva. And uh, apparently, um, to get into the character and to show that he was to, to the producers really into the character, um, Bardem had the script translated into Spanish so that he could understand oh, un- understand it better. better yeah. Mm. And, and yeah, so that's so that's what he did. And he kind of dyed his hair blonde, like that was part of the image that he and him and uh, Mendes kind of created together. Kind of gives him the look of some kind of like a Renaissance picture of like some angel or something <laughs> like that, right? Uh, when his quirk was actually quite the opposite, you know, he's like almost like a fallen angel if you think about it in the way that he was portrayed. Mm. Almost like Lucifer, you know what I mean? Rose to a great heights and then was cast down for his pride because you know he wanted to. Take on on the on the on the on the Chinese way too much than was politically, I guess, necessary at the time because as we know the story of how Silva becomes the Silva, you know, yeah. of the villain. He's kind of like a, the first prodigal son, or at least in his eyes. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of prodigal son Oedipal kind of stuff yeah. in this movie for yeah. sure. Not Oedipal in a sense, in, <laughs> in the direct sense, but you know what I mean. <laughs> There's kind of like a substitution of maternal roles that occurs for M is for, for maternal for, for, for the two characters. <laughs> yeah. So then we have uh, Naomi Harris signed on as Eve, um, later to be revealed as Money Penny, uh, which I refer to her in my summary as she who is the yet not named. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Pritchard Productions that originally the whole train sequence. Um, that you see in the beginning in Istanbul and and, and environs, um, that was really supposed to be in India, but they could not afford to get it done. It was just the the logistics where you were just too, um, they they just did not work at the time. So they decided to, uh, then they they filmed outside of Istanbul in one of the suburbs there. And that kind of, they were able to pull off like outside, like, you know, like where he jumps off the bridge onto, onto the train and then, and then the big and then the big train sequence afterwards. That was all outside of uh, Istanbul in, in, in a community called Adana. Uh, they filmed the most. They did a lot of filming in London, um, and everything you see in the film that's London is pretty much London. Uh, Scotland was also used as we um, we talked about earlier. Uh, Glencoe, um, in particular, was used as the location for the um, the final sequence. Uh, it was originally going to be Duntroon Castle in Argyll. But that got canceled, and then Glencoe became the place. However, the set of of the Skyfall estate and the um, the met and um, and the interior exterior of, of those sets were filmed in Hankley Common in Surrey. Uh, they used plywood and plaster to build a full scale model. Oh, so to, so that they could use it for blowing things up various times and whatnot, which I'm sure they probably did. Oh, I'm sure. You couldn't you couldn't do all that in one take, you know what I mean? If they did, we would have probably heard about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then again, we didn't know that they basically built like a a, a big like soundstage in Venice for just for the Casino Royale sequence. So you never really know, eh? True enough. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Who really knows unless it unless it is broadcast as part of the film production? 
Yeah. And uh, can I just pick up on something you're saying about this um, this manor, like the Skyfall Estate itself? Okay, so that was built in Surrey, and the interior shots were all done there. But and the outside shots, like around the building as well, were also filmed in Surrey. Okay, it was a right. like the establishing yeah. shot was like uh, that was in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, that just answered my question. <laughs> yeah, and then and yeah, it's a lot of the locations too, like in Shanghai. Uh, were actually filmed in London um, for some sequences. Um, Broadgate ta- Tower was used, like in, in a way, as an office build, build a building there for the and and they used aerial footage of Shanghai. And all, and the Golden Dragon Casino in Macau, where he meets Severin, uh, that was all soundstage, like Ken Adams style at Pinewood Ooh. Studios. Cool. Yeah. So. Yes, and of course, um, the rest of the cast, as, as we've seen, were signed on to um, Ray Fiennes as Gareth Mallory, who basically is being set up to become the new M. Mm-hmm. Judy Dench returned as M in a final and great role. Um, the music this time, because it's Sam Mendes, he like only likes to work with T- Thomas Newman, apparently. <laughs> so Thomas Newman adds to the Bond by Numbers numerical trivia here as the ninth James Bond composer. Yeah, and it's... Uh, an interesting score. When I first reviewed this with you, when we did our little musical retrospective years ago, or three or four years ago, Josh, um, this this score really came up short, and it, it still does come up short if you're looking for something that's a really uh, attractive orchestral listening experience on CD or you know digital. If you're just kind of wanting a good yes. album to put on, it, it does fall short. But it, you know, watching it and listening to it more carefully. And deconstructing it for the for the sake of transitions and stuff, this is actually a really workable and uh, serviceable set of musical cues. And I've, I'm starting to appreciate what Newman did with this a little more than I did originally. I ended up really yeah. liking the score uh, with the movie. Anyways, like I haven't really listened to it again outside the context of the film, but I really ended up really enjoying the score and I, I found it actually more enjoyable than the than I think some of the recent David Arnold ones. Prior to that, because I found Arnold just after Tomorrow Never Dies, I found Arnold just got lost that John Barry feel and kind of just went into this techno side of things that I just wasn't a huge fan of. In in regards to this score, I was going to say that, yeah, it's not as flashy, but to be honest, because the way the movie is, uh, it is so intense and that kind of stuff. There isn't as many cues and that kind of stuff, but it was kind of minimal, but it worked because sort of just the style of the film, I I think it I think it worked very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, just watching it the second time. I mean, obviously, when I watched it the first time, I wasn't like really paying attention for the music cues as much as any uh, you do when you listen to a Bond, when you're watching a Bond film and you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, there it is. That that works. Yeah. Watching it this time, uh, I just thought that, like you were saying, it, it you probably you guys didn't uh, rate it as highly when you guys were doing uh, the previous podcast, but watching it this time, I thought it worked pretty well, mm-hmm. um, and I, I liked it for what it was. Yeah, and. Um... Yeah, so the so I think we, I think we kind of yeah I, I would say that Thomas Newman did a pretty serviceable job and mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more for yeah. for Skyfall um, than I, I think than what I kind of gave him from before. Um, uh, as we mentioned, you know how like the sets that were constructed, some of them were really great, like the Macau casino sequence uh, that was yeah, by Dennis Gassner, who came on uh, um, as production designer a, a few bonds ago as well, and he's definitely kind of continuing the legacy of Ken Adam. Then you got like Gary Powell uh, doing the the basic effects, such as uh, you know supervising the stunt work, as well as the um, just the real effects like explosions and whatnot. And then you have Chris Corbell doing like doing the doing this the CGI work on top of that. 
and then Alexander Witt um, going to location, location as second unit director. They uh, they had a really great team with, with this film. And then add on, you know, like small roles that were kind of really stood out, like um, Roy, uh, Roy Kinnear as Tanner, uh, Ben Wishaw as Q, and then even uh, the tragic um, Severin played by Bernice Marlahoy. Uh, just, I think this, this this movie just had a a bouquet of riches to it, with with Mendes being the cherry on, on top. So that's all that came, I think, with the production of Skyfall that we really need to consider, you know, um, as a kind of a, a backdrop to how this team put this movie together. Okay, well, nice work there. Let's get in then to a little bit of critical reception, shall we? Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is. I remember just being part, of, just being around the zeitgeist of this film when it came out, and everyone was like, "Bond, Bond," and you know, Skyfall was like going to be the, the huge 50th anniversary, the big, the greatest Bond film ever. And did it come across that way? Well, it did to most critics. Um, this was a largely appreciated film. A lot of the public and the critics felt as though this was uh, a fantastic answer to Quantum, which was marred by that writer's strike, uh, very schizophrenic in its design and in its um, in its execution, as we've already discussed. Not a bad film, but very convoluted. And uh, this was a, this was a, a much more simple, straightforward character story. A lot of people writing at the time um, appreciated the the attempt to make a deeper character story for James Bond and, and maybe taking the character in a place where he's never gone before. Uh, a lot of them kind of spoke about that type of... Uh, I mean, I, I'm using the word courage quite loosely because we're dealing with a fictional character here, uh, you know, a movie character, but doing what Fleming never did with it, really. And I, I can't say I agree with those necessary assessments. I would I would challenge some of the critics who say that Fleming never offered his Bond character the depth of remorse or the depth of sadness or you know because there there are a lot of shades to that character on, yeah, on the page yeah. that's a very but broad statement it is, yeah. made about the bond yeah. books and it, it it definitely lacks any i think introspective mm-hmm. you know you know by you know you can glean through the pages of the james bond n- novels all the things that they say that the bond films were missing they're there you just have to look for them you just got to look for them yeah well i mean I, I could select any number of very, very positive reviews, and I've got a couple to talk to you about, but I thought I'd start with some negative reviews um, mm-hmm. after giving you a little bit of info on its on its uh, budget and whatnot. This film premiered, as you may have said, Josh, the 23rd of October 2012 in the UK, 9th of November in North America, and it was... I wanted to add, too, yep. I mentioned earlier that the King and the Duke of Edinburgh were there. I, I got my royal couples mixed up. It was Charles, Prince of Wales, and and the Duchess Cam- okay. Camilla of Cornwall. Sorry. Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> all, the, all the blue bloods, thank you. I'm sure they will, yes. Hi, Megan. Hi, Kate. <laughs> oh, sorry. Your Highness, Emperor. Yeah. Right. So uh, the budget of this film was 206 million pounds uh, adjusted of course for inflation its box office pulled in domestic 313.8 million pounds worldwide however it fetched over a billion and while that is a disgusting ridiculous amount of money for any one motion picture to draw in it 
still only ranks as the 16th most lucrative film in the series because while a billion pounds is a great headline, the film cost, you know, about a quarter of that to make. So yes. it's it's not quite as lucrative as some of the others, okay? 455% was a return on dollar for dollar investment and uh yeah, that's definitely you got to you got to make your you got to make sure that it makes almost twice as more of that to be a hit nowadays. Mhm. I don't know that Bond will ever need that, but yes, it certainly needs to earn back yeah, its own budget. <laughs> yeah, and and more to be to, 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 to be considered a hit nowadays. Yeah, well, you know, guys, with respect to the critical reception, ninety-two uh, percent fresh uh, and very good. I think seven, eight, or eight one rating on IMDb user reviews as well, and it's it's critical survey. But I've got a couple of big sources that didn't like it, and I thought instead of you know instead of getting the um, the marginal ones. I'll I'll read a little bit from both the Boston Globe review by Wesley Morris and the New York Post review by Kyle Smith. Okay, I if uh, if we can start with the Boston Globe here. Okay. The James Bond movie franchise turns fifty this year and continues with Daniel Craig in the title role. But to hear everybody in Skyfall debate whether after twenty three movies James has now looked too long in the tooth for glamorous spycraft, the leaping onto speeding trains, uh, <clears throat> the leaping onto speeding trains, the sneaking up behind a sexy lady as she showers. You'd think that the star of the movie is Methuselah. Skyfall refers to James's boyhood manner, but really, it's what Chicken Little calls his action thriller, not 007. At almost two and a half hours, the movie plays like a long, familiar family conversation. Should we put Dad in a home or not? Well, this idea of retirement comes up over and over, and it does so at the expense of the actual fun of these movies. Their exaggerated interpretation of international politics, warlords, terrorists, greedy pigs, insane demands, pathological need of sex to be had. The movie gives us Raul Silva, an evil former agent who's still mad about his treatment by MI6 and its ruthless director, M. He wants the British intelligence agency in general, and M in particular, to suffer. So he steals a file with names of NATO field operatives and begins to blow cover, one mission at a time. These are truly tedious stakes for an action movie. The franchise isn't worried about world safety. It's fretting over whether to start wearing Depends. After more than an hour, Silver reveals himself among the vivid, brutalist ruins of Japan's deserted Hashima Island. The combination of Bardem's slabby handsomeness and his newly yellow hair and orange eyebrows achieves unsightly alchemy. He's Frankenstein's Ken doll. Silva ties James up to a chair and proceeds to fondle, among other parts, his Adam's apple. It's quite a moment, one that both deliberately echoes a grisly torture scene in Casino Royale, a much livelier evening at the movies, with Craig's maiden outing as Bond, and implies the character's bisexuality. Silva's flirting with Bond, and sadly, Skyfall is flirting with us. Silva brings Bond to Hashima Island not for sex, but to lecture him about what dinosaurs they all are. Bond, M, the agency, the series, their technology, their jet-set approach to intelligence. Watching the purposefulness of this movie, the way Mendez argues for conversation and atmosphere over conventional, incoherently assembled chases and fights, I realized I was frustrated. Skyfall does every single thing these movies have to do. Bond's last name, full name introduction, the shaking of the martini, the sports car, sex, the stunts, deployment of gadgets, camped up villainy, and there's little Mendez can do to enliven the familiarity. He has a set of instructions, and straying too far from them risks rearranging an entire room when your assignment was simply to remove a chair. 
Once James finds himself behind the wheel of an Aston Martin, Silver reveals his detachable jaw, and the equipment specialist Q and the executive assistant Moneypenny are reintroduced to the series, the movie's self-defensiveness has atrophied into the kind of nostalgia that calls into question going on with this enterprise at all. Here we go again. And this is especially true of Daniel Craig, who after three movies actually does look ready to retire. He has an actor's dramatic heft, but with the exception of Casino Royale, these movies have given him very little to act, which means you need a star with the kind of shameless, unembarrassed charisma that Craig, unlike Connery and Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan, might be too self-consciously talented to deploy. Casino Royale gave him a psychology to play. Here, he's best as a kind of solemn fashion model, leaping from an excavator into the car of a moving train, stopping only to adjust the cuff of his shirt. Craig is either playing a man who's psychologically firewalled, or he's layered a lot of posing and grave expressions into a sophisticated illusion of instinct. Richard Burton not drunk enough to get loose. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Comments on that before I read you another one? Uh, I think that's someone who... I can see he has fatigue with the franchise, for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, I also think that he feels that Mendes and what Craig and, try to, and, and the screenwriters and the, try to do with that film, I think he sees it as pretentious. And he says, why are you going through all these lengths, you know, mm-hmm. to on a Bond film? You know what I mean? These are supposed to be fun. And, and you know, like what you're but and you're, you're you're almost like you're questioning, you know, the whole point of a Bond film while, in the, in, while you're making the movie. And that's kind of what they were doing, really. They were deconstructing it, but they weren't doing it in a way that I think is negative. I think no. they were do, was doing it like it's almost like a love letter to the character and and and, yeah. and whatnot. Um and yeah, but the, at the same time, he also he he did mention I did I did I did agree with him about how the film tries to bring strip things down and show the bare bones and and kind of examine I guess the fatigue that some that the, that that particular I guess you could say James Bond is a subgenre <laughs> in many ways um, is feeling by also trying to go back to. Because he mentions about M and uh, sorry about Moneypenny and Q and bringing these characters back, so they're trying to deconstruct things, but at the same time they're still bringing in the the familiar over and over again. So maybe he feels that the movie is tonally undecided. Hmm. Okay. Well, keeping in mind these ideas of tone and pretension, as you said earlier, let's have a listen to this little bit from Kyle Smith on the New York Post and see if you agree with his assessment. 007 is showing his wrinkles, and in the utterly routine effort, Skyfall, we're actually expected to cheer each word we've heard so many times before. Here's a martini. Look, it's a Walter PPK, and there's an Aston Martin. We've been turned into wretched Pavlovian dogs, salivating at the bell instead of the snack. The highlight, by far, is a classic animated credit sequence. Adele, you're the new Shirley Bassey. Bond, Daniel Craig, is nearly killed in the opening scene, yet another third world chase, again, with the motorcycles and the bazaar, really, in which 007 inexplicably keeps calling home to the boss, M, for direction. Guys, James Bond does not use permission slips. Where's the moment where he throws away his headset and goes it alone, consequences be damned? Worse, he's highly dependent on the heroics of a groovy co-secret agent, Naomi Harris, who seems thrown in to make Bond seem less alarmingly white and male. The sparks between them are non-existent, and brace yourself for an amazingly idiotic exchange between them at the end. Worse still, Bond survives something that is unsurvivable. He's not Superman. Then, feeling his life was endangered by M, he hides, whines, sulks, stops shaving, and, this is truly unforgivable, drinks a Heineken. To his credit, 
He does cover the label with his hand, ashamed at being caught drinking Austin Powers' brew. Back at MI6, by HQ in London, there's a bombing and M gets chastised by her political overseer, Ray Fiennes. Yet, when told to resign, she simply refuses, which seems contrary or contrary to the British spirit of taking responsibility. A nerdy new Q, the boy pixie Ben Wishaw, hands Bond his new sidearm in the middle of the National Gallery. These are secret agents? Do they post photos of their kills on Facebook? Soon, we're off to China and the Pacific in search of a stolen list of the true identities of secret agents. The idea itself, by the way, is stolen. Remember the knock list from Mission Impossible? And to meet the gay supervillain behind everything. He's the campy Silva, Javier Bardem in a Princess Die wig, who caresses Bond's thighs and whispers, let's see who ends, <laughs> who ends up on top. That's a Princess Die wig. Silva, Silva, it turns out, is an ex-colleague of Bond's who was betrayed by M for no reason except being over-enthusiastic in his duties. American beauty director Sam Mendes, now riding a streak of five bad movies, borrows heavily from The Dark Knight, giving Bond a Bruce Wayne backstory and a big silly shootout at a Wayne Manor-like estate. Silva becomes a Jokerish master of disguise, but there's no wit or spirit to the action scenes. If you've seen the trailer, you've seen all the good stuff in this movie. And the imagination-free script keeps expressing amazement at these things called computers that can apparently wreak so much havoc. Mendez and Deacons are so busy trying to be visionary that they don't notice the characters are wandering too far from their roots, and half the time you can't see what's going on. A sequence in Shanghai in which Bond fights a fellow assassin against a gorgeous giant screen of jellyfish imagines jellyfish images degenerates into two anonymous backlit shadows. Silva is introduced with a shot that's so ridiculously deep focus, the camera work becomes a distraction. The scenes at the country house, which feature an amusing cameo by Albert Finney, trying his best to sound Scottish, are a bedlam of shadow and blasts of mustard-colored light. And it goes on in that fashion, but uh, I, won't, I won't read any more. But, yeah, there's, I mean, th- these are big, fairly reputable newspapers, you know? Uh, New York Post is kind of like the, I know I know it's like the side conser- it. yeah, like the conservative yeah uh, side of like American journalism it's they they wouldn't be considered fake news they would consider the New York Times fake news yeah but I I didn't say that they were they were good I said they were big yeah. they were big sources of journalism the Boston Globe man the Boston Globe is the newspaper that that outed the Catholic Church during its uh, scandal yeah. in New England so I mean we're talking about decent publications that yeah. at least have an audience you know that are thinking in some capacity. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think those two. I think those, and I'm sure there's others. Others there. There was others out there like them as well. I think that uh, there's a lot of I think subjectivity in those reviews, and I. I, I it, it seems like they're just. It's really hard to to, to see if if, if are, are they actually just doing like a hot take, you know? Because I remember how this movie was just so huge when it came out and stuff. And they want to make they want to make their name by by bashing it. Not make their name, but I don't know. <laughs> well, they probably already have a name, but. Well, there is something to that, isn't there? Like, you know when this movie comes out and people start talking about it being the best Bond that everyone's going to say the same thing. And so there there might be a young journalist here wanting to make a name for himself or or to to get a different Twitter handle. It is. I'm not not saying that's that's what he did, but it's very possible. But I also see kind of almost a conservative backlash against that kind of deconstruction and and that kind of arty, uh, I get quote-unquote, approach that they're taking to, like, to a beloved... I, I guess uh, relic like the like the like the James Bond film, right? Like all the stuff they love about the James Bond film about not taking it seriously, about going on a, a, adventures and whatnot, uh, globe trotting and the sex and and all that sort of stuff. Like they enjoy those cliches and they don't. I, and, and 
they feel that Mendes and stuff were just simply uh, putting a sheen to that with like, you know, focusing too much on making a, a visual gem or a vision, as the guy said, uh, as opposed to, you know, just making just like a meat and potatoes Bond film. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, if you want to kind of contrasting views to that, have a look at Time Magazine's review by Richard Corliss, which is very positive. Have also a look at Ebert's own review for uh, Skyfall, which fetched uh, four stars, which is high, his highest rating. And wow. I'll, I'll only read a little bit more. North of the border, guys, a little closer to home here. McLean's Magazine. Brian, wow. Brian Johnson writing in McLean's. Brian Johnson's good. I saw Skyfall at a press preview in Manhattan before the flood back in mid-October when I also had the pleasure of interviewing Daniel Craig. I can't remember the last time my excitement to see a much ballyhooed Hollywood blockbuster was so richly rewarded. I came out of the screening thrilled by what I'd seen and immediately tweeted that Skyfall is, quote, the best Bond movie ever and that's not hype, end quote, which drew a startled response. At least one journalist asked if I wasn't worried I might want to recalibrate that superlative in the cold light of morning. But I had just rewatched all my favorite Bond films while researching an epic essay on the franchise for the McLean's special issue commemorating 50 years of 007, so I felt confident in making that claim. However, as Skyfall finally hits theaters this week, I have no desire to review it. As a film critic, I have the privilege of being able to see a movie fresh before people like me ruin it with a lot of clever opinions and observations. <laughs> with, with most Bond movies, there's not much to spoil. Bond infiltrates megalomaniac. Uh, megalomaniac's lair gets captured stops world from ending escapes with the girl but skyfall has a story that's stronger than most of those dreamt up by ian fleming and in it and it has some serious surprises so i'm not going to offer a shred of plot summary here there's more than enough in the trailer instead let me spell out with a few broad strokes why skyfall is the best bond film ever Sean Connery originated the role and will always be the quintessential Bond, but Craig is the first actor to really wrestle with the tormented psychology of the character that Fleming created. He's also the first actor who does not seem trapped in the role. As Craig pointed out in his interview with me, having a strong measure of creative control was an essential part of his deal when he was cast for Casino Royale. He took that one step further by personally recruiting the Oscar-winning filmmaker Sam Mendes to direct Skyfall, and with him came a prime echelon of Oscar pedigree talent like no Bond film had ever seen, notably Javier Bardem, Ray Fiennes, Albert Finney, and the promotion of Judi Dench's M into a much meatier role. Mendes, meanwhile, recruited cinematographer Richard Deakins, the Coen brothers' go-to DOP, whose influence cannot be overstated. Bond movies tend to revel in eye candy, but none has been so uniformly gorgeous as Skyfall, which unfolds as a suite of stunning visual compositions, from the neon aquarium of Shanghai to the moons uh, to the moors of Scotland. Deakins has nine Oscar nominations for pictures ranging from The Shawshank Redemption to No Country for Old Men. It would be cool to see him finally win for a Bond movie. Skyfall elevates the Bond genre to a new level of A-list refinement, but it's a game-changing movie in more ways than one. Casino Royale smartly rebooted the franchise, which had been languishing an overblown spectacle and campy farce. Craig slammed it back to earth with a vengeance and more than earned his license to kill and to shag. It was a movie that had a lot to prove. Then, with a script hobbled by a writer's strike and a miscast director in Mark Forster, the follow-up Quantum of Solace turned out to be a mess. With Skyfall, Craig no longer looks like a guy trying to prove himself. He's supremely comfortable in the role and the movie reconnects his character to the franchise by embracing and deflecting its classic tropes with a deft wit. But it goes beyond Bond and takes him places that Fleming never dreamt of. 
That's a good one. So it's it's so I, I don't know about the Fleming hyperbole there, but yeah. I do I do I do think though that we're seeing that's a perfect example I think of one spectrum of critical reception to the mm-hmm. film and to what you just showed us from the New York Post and from uh, the Boston Globe is that I think people uh, either enjoyed the the, the look and the the breakdown that that Mendes and Craig and uh, Deakins were offering hmm. and or some just found it just trying to mask the the problems that they still had with right. the franchise yeah and I guess I can see that but uh, it's quite the thing is it is quite different so people were expecting it to be like other Bond films this one was not right um, and so it's I guess people are kind of they were kind of maybe put off by that but I guess you could say well they're trying to cover it up you know because the last one was kind of a, a bit of a failure uh, definitely my my uh, lowest rating <laughs> if we go by money pennies, um, but this one, anyways, I think it was great in its own way. Uh, I think it's it's really interesting to see how this Bond movie is. It's a lot more sort of um, cerebral. It's just showing the you know, especially with the villain and how he's kind of deranged and he's got this revenge and um, you know he's got mom issues and stuff like that. I guess. Um, so it's really interesting to see that, and you don't usually have that in in, in Bond films. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, our cup runneth over. Josh, tell us about these mom issues. Tell us about this villain. Tell us about Skyfall. So we have our cold open. Bond arrives at the Istanbul safe house too late. Only one agent is alive, barely, and his computer has been smashed open and the disk drive of which Bond has been tracking is in the possession of the assassin. M commands Bond via earpiece to lead the dying agent B, and soon Bond is with she who he has yet to be named, pursuing the assassin's sedan in a Range Rover. Is it a Range Rover? Yeah, I do believe so. I, th- I think it's a Range Rover. I'm, I'm not quite yeah. great on automobiles. Um, yeah, they're, I mean, they're, they're far, far more prevalent in Europe and... Yeah, it's a Range Rover, man. I'm almost guaranteed. I'm going to find out for you, but I'm almost positive. Yeah. So we go from Range Rover to motorcycle to train car in pursuit of the assassin and the MacGuffin disk drive. Bond catches around in the shoulder from the villain's submachine gun, but he's got a backhoe conveniently placed on the flatbed car to bridge the opposite car and vacate the bowels of the occupants of the passenger train at the same time. She who is yet to be named is racing the Range Rover alongside the train. By this point, they are in the they are outside the city, heading into the mountains and towards a rail bridge spanning a river gorge. Bond and the assassin biff and pow each other atop the train car, and she who is yet to be named finds a ridge overlooking the bridge and rushes out to the closest vantage point, rifle and scope in hand. She can't get a clear shot without possibly hitting 007, but M realizes that this 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 and orders her to take the shot. She takes the shot. Bond is blasted from the train car and into the raging river below. Ouch. Opening titles. Uh, as Bond's seemingly lifeless form plunges to the depth of the river, we get a trippy journey to the riverbed as he disappears down what looks like the maw of a sarlacc. And with the powerful vocals of Adele lighting our way, we get a parade of thematic symbolism and credits. So without going to, you know, go, blow by blow, without going, I, I think, into blow by blow detail, what did you guys think of the opening titles? I liked them. I did like the opening titles, actually, to this one. I thought I thought they were interesting. Um, yeah, I really did too. Uh, I liked how it it went from you know the waterfall and then um, also just the way it was underwater. So it had that nice kind of flow. Like you know how they, there's always like a flow to the the opening credits, and I like how it 
just sort of him being underwater, it kind of created a flow itself, and it was kind of neat how that continued on. I like that. Yeah, yeah. The, I found the water symbolism really interesting. Yeah. Um, if I may adventure, uh, the symbolism of like water connecting Bond with M throughout the film, I kind of found that really interesting. I don't know if you if you saw that. Yeah, I. I, I I mean, I can see it. I guess I can see it from a foreshadowing point of view that, you know, sitting yeah. in the water at the beginning and he falls back in the water at the end, you know, as he's crossing to uh, to get to the estate church and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, um, the, you know, I think there's the, 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 the credits, I think, really show the, um, the symbolism and the themes that are in, in, the, in the film. Uh, like just the idea of like there's like the daggers and the yeah and the um, shooting gallery cards that are, that appear, mm-hmm. um, you know the 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 stag symbolism with Skyfall, Skyfall connecting yeah. to Bond, mm-hmm. and uh, the guy who did the um, opening titles Kleinman. He also did. Uh, he be, he began with the franchise with Goldeneye, actually, mm-hmm. and Goldeneye to me is the beginning of of a real great um, set of James Bond credits because you had Maurice yeah. Binder doing yeah. it in the in the seventies and eighties, and I found he was pretty blasé, to be honest with you. Kind of, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean. I think we got to be careful, you know, when we we bring these sorts of criticisms out because what were the Bond films then? Like, that's one of the reasons I don't it's want true. to get too hot on this film without Craig being the only oh. guy who could carry the, the depth of Bond. The scripts didn't demand the other actors that's to true. carry the depth of yep. the character. Yep. So it's not fair to say Pierce couldn't have done it, Connery didn't bring it, Moore couldn't have brought it. Like, the, the scripts weren't demanding that for them. Like, Craig is no. in the right place at the right time, and he's part of a really good script that allows for a more psychological bond, because that's what this yeah. is, this is yeah. asking for. So, I mean, getting back to your point about Maurice Binder, yeah, his were fun, the naked silhouettes, the dancing, the guns and the smoking mouths and all this kind of stuff. And the neon. Yeah, like, yeah. but those, those were of the time as well. And I just think everything with Bond has got to be considered within its historical context, right? Yeah, that's definitely true. I just found personally, aesthetically, like in comparison, I think just because of the technology that they had, mm-hmm. it, it, it is true. It is unfair to, to judge them. But I still find the 60s um, Bond films are were better designed song sequences, okay. All right. title song sequences than the ones in the 70s yeah, and the 80s. Okay, sure. Yeah. yeah. I also so, have that opinion. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. So London, the rain continues to fall, and M is alone at her desk typing up Bond's obituary. Anybody notice that Bond is part of the Royal Navy? Did you see that on on, okay. on there? So that's so, that I wanted to mention. Sorry. Yeah. So could this variation of Bond, in fact, serve in the Royal Navy before becoming double a, a double O agent? You know, like maybe he was a special air service, as we and Vesper assumed. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, or is it just a 50th anniversary nod to the old James Bond? What do you think? I well, think it's a 50th anniversary nod because we've been told he's SAS, but at the same right. time, at the same time, you know, these guys, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a weird sort of quiz, isn't it? Well, the other thing well, I noticed... Vesper, who, who suggested he was SAS, though, SAS type, she says in that dialogue. So we don't actually know. Maybe he could have been like a Royal Marine or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. if he was like a commando. But yeah. one thing I noticed is when she was typing it out, uh, it showed that he was Royal Naval, you know, Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, which he was, and he had a decoration, the CMG, mm-hmm. um, which is the basically 
And of course, no. I'm, uh, it is the Order of Saint Michael and Saint George. Well, that's the that that's the Order of the Garter, right? I mean, that's like but that's, that's nice. Yeah, yeah is it, it's the it's mentioned in, and it's mentioned in some of the other books. So, from Russia was love, Honor, Majesty, Secret Service, and in uh, Skyfall through the the obituary. Interesting thing about um, Saint George is that I think he was like Armenian or or it was in Turkey or something where he did his dragon slaying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you listen to our um, <laughs> where he did his dragon slaying, it's just like you know where he picked up his milk. <laughs> it yeah, like, exactly. Um, if you listen to our literary gun barrel episode that I posted there just last week, the sort of uh, mix up of uh, our, our earlier podcast uh, shakes on on the, the novels of the films that we've been re- re- doing. Um, there's a lot of St. George imagery in Goldfinger, which yes. in the book we talk quite a bit about, and I, I did select part of that to share too, so it's pretty cool stuff. Ah, neat. Neat. Yeah. So, so M and her chief of staff, Bill Tanner, have an appointment with Gareth Mallory, an ex-military man who confirms that the data drive contains an entire list of undercover MI6 agents and that M is in political hot water. They are positioning for M's imminent resignation, and Mallory will be the new head of MI6. But that's not the end of M's woes. As she returns to MI6, Tanner is informed that the disk drive is now online, and whoever is, whoever is using it is hacking MI6, correction, hacking M's computer and harassing her with Terry Gilliam-esque animations. But things get real when the upper levels of MI6 explode in front of her. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Bond's alive, taking a quantum of solace with a random girl on some tropical island. My guess is somewhere in the Cyclades or the Greek islands. Any theories? Mm, I don't know. I because don't know. if he's in Turkey and disappeared, mm-hmm. like it looks like he was at like a resort and oh, or you're something, right? It would be close by at least. It, it would be oh, close by. That's yeah, a pretty good assessment. It could be like Cyprus or something like that, maybe. Yeah, it'd be uh, somewhere where he could um, hide low, though. I mean, exactly. it's not somewhere that is going to. Yeah, I think I think you're right, probably. But it doesn't look like he's hanging out with tourists. It looks like he's hanging out with locals. It does, yeah, but in the bar there might be might have been some tourists in there. It's it's hard to say where he is. But I guess BBC it's not really... News is on, so I, I guess that's something, isn't it? Maybe it is Cyprus, or maybe uh, yeah, maybe it, it is Cyprus. He, he could even be in the in the in the Caribbean, uh, and mm-hmm. they they just didn't really establish where he was for the purposes of the story. I think they didn't want to necessarily do that. I think they wanted to just make it like, hey, look, it's tropical. Everyone's sweaty. Everyone has a tan. Uh, I think you're right, though, Josh. I, I would go with your first assumption. It's somewhere yeah. Asiatic. It's somewhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Somewhere. So it's somewhere Aegean. Sorry. And it's yeah. Uh, yeah. Some something like that because he gets back to London fairly quickly after seeing that video. Really? He yeah. sure does. Yeah. yeah. He really does. So having survived his fall and the gunshot, Bond seems to be enjoying lounging around with his, with his no strings relationship and a bottle of Heineken. Mm. Oh, and because he is bored out of his skull, he entertains the audience of a local beach watering hole with taking a copious amount of shots with a scorpion on his drinking hand. Mm. At dawn, he, is, he, he still remains going for another when he hears Wolf Blitzer bleed out about the MI6 bombing. The sleeper has awakened. That's a Dune reference. He continues his tradition of waiting for M in the shadows of her apartment, but M's in no mood, having attended the funeral of nine MI6 officers. M is steely in her resolve. If Bond wants back, he needs to complete the testing. Tanner brings Bond to the temporary MI6 headquarters, where he undergoes a necessary physical and psychological testing so he may return to duty. Gareth Mallory, waiting in the wings to take control, is unconvinced. Heck, Bond himself is unconvinced, but M trusts Bond's instinct, especially when Bond, belabored by all the testing, though he dare not show it, removes a shrapnel from the assassin's shoulder wound. 
The bits of metal are of some, ura- of some uranium core. Could cancer be Bond's inevitable end? Uh, used in the bullets. It's a fetish that only a few assassins seem to share. A mugshot of various perps makes it easy for Bond to spot the disk drive thief. His name is Patrice, and the CIA is out for his blood as well. Tanner uses these connections to determine Patrice's next port of call, which will be Shanghai. Bond gets his orders. Find out who hired Patrice and cross him off. Before he embarks, he's got a meeting with Q branch at the National Gallery. Mm. This is not the Q we remember, obviously. Old generation meets millennial generation. Q has a present for Bond, a Walther PPK that only he can use, and a tiny, tiny radio. Bond arrives in Shanghai, though it looks more like Blade Runner. Mm. He's just chilling in high-rise hotels, swimming and drinking while waiting for Patrice to arrive. He gets the text he's been waiting for and, in the guise of a limousine driver, tails Patrice from the airport to an office building. Bond coldly observes Patrice take out the front desk dude. I'm sure his family will be content with knowing his sacrifice was worth it to prevent some psycho former MI6 agent with an Oedipus complex from assassinating the woman (laughs) who made him crazy in the first place. Oh, wait. He did do that in the end. Back to unreality. Bond follows the trail of bodies, keeping it on the down low while Patrice boards the elevator. As the glass lift begins to ascend, Bond rushes beneath it and really, really wishes he had applied that baby powder. The lift soars to great heights whilst Bond and the audience deal with the vertigo, me included. Having held on to dear life, Bond follows Patrice onto a glass-encased floor. Patrice sets up his sniper rifle whilst cutting a hole in the glass. Across the span, we see the beautiful Severin for the first time in a clear view of the window, lining up some poor bastard to have his brain splatter the room. At least he got to look at a cool painting. As the poor mensch slumps to the floor, Bond charges Patrice and Roger Deakins' cinematography and Gregory Powell's stun work gives us a bitching, artfully choreographed fight that ends with a Patrice taking a swan dive. His sniper kit turns out to be more lucrative, a poker chip marked Macau. Bond collects his winning, singular, while Severin looks on. After a close shave with she who is not yet to be named, Bond arrives at a gambling resort at Macau with the lady in question working with him via earpiece. By the lady in question, I mean she who is not yet named, not uh, Severin. There's some Komodo dragons in a pit below the entranceway to the casino. I don't think this bears any relevance or will be utilized in an upcoming scene at all. At all. (laughs) Really. Some flirtatious dialogue later, Bond brings a poker chip to the cassier. This brings him to the attention of whoever hired Patrice, who appears to have a retinue of gangster types working for him. Also watching him from afar is Severin. The cassier returns with a briefcase of cash for Bond. Severine approaches him and introducing herself, they have a compelling conversation. Bond Sherlock Severin, determining that she is a kept woman of the Macau sex traffickers, or was, and was liberated by whomever has the disk drive. He wants to meet her employer, but she is clearly terrified of said employer. Bond flat out promises to kill him, but Severin be like, that's great and all, but first you have to defeat the mini-boss and leave this place alive. But if you do make it through, I'll be at the end of the level waiting on my sailing yacht, the Chimera. Ballsy Bond decides to walk out with the cash, but the expected party of goons, hired goons, surround him. Bond takes all but one out, plummeting to the, ahem, Komodo dragons below. Soul Survivor gives Bond a thumping and manages to get a hold of Bond's Walther in the struggle. But the palm print security measure built into the gun isn't giving an inch. That's when one of the K-dragons takes a chunk of Soul Survivor's calf and drags him to a terrible, terrible death. Bond grabs his gun and, having dispatched one of the remaining thugs, leaves she who is yet to be named with the cash. Bond reaches the end of the proverbial level and sneaks aboard the sailing yacht, Prison, where he finds Severin in her shower stall. Which is really convenient, because he needs to shower too, it seems. Mm. He could at least wait until she was finished, though. Sheesh. 
<laughs> so Severin's employer owns an island. Bond joins Severin on deck and, like her, is placed under custody of Severin's employer. Her employer faked a gas leak and had the island, which belonged to some factory and its workers, abandoned it ages ago. Now it's a creepy homage to a World War II movie, complete with 40s music on loudspeakers being blasted everywhere. Severin and Bond are both bound and separated by the goons. Bond finds himself tied to a chair at one end of a vast hall lined with, a giant, with giant hard drives. Severin's employer arrives via elevator on the opposite side, where we get a grand, pretentious villain monologue from Javier Bardem's Raul Silva. Something about a barrel and rats and rats eating each other. It makes sense. Severin's employer, this Silva, is something else. He's foppish, flamboyant, and crazy. He even tries to seduce Bond whilst going over M's many sins. Silva leads Bond outside where we find Severin still bound and now gagged and bloodied, propped against the base of a fallen statue. Silva places a shot of whiskey atop her head and proceeds to open up a case of flintlock pistols. Naturally. Silva, Silva wants Bond to hit the shot glass, proving his aim is still good, but Bond misses. Silva does not. Poor Severin. But don't worry. Bond has his mini radio and the cavalry has arrived. Hey, Severin. Oh, yeah. We're just going to... Yeah. Silva finds himself occupying Magneto's cell, deep below London, in the retrofitted MI6 bunkers. M has a Hannibal Lecter moment with her, and we with him, sorry, and we learn that Silva was the MI6 agent working out of Hong Kong, who went full ham and screwing the Chinese over. And then in 1999 happened, a few a- M gets a few agents back because she has to surrender the pesky Silva to probably some very begrudging Chinese officials. Silva then reveals he is a true Bond villain, complete with a deformity as a cyanide capsule he bit into didn't kill him, but burned his throat and upper digestive tract. He basically has a denture keeping his face from melting. Interesting. Meanwhile, M has to go answer for all the dead MI6 agents thanks to Silva, and Q is going to have a corker of a time decrypting the disk drive. M arrives at her hearing with Tanner and her team, including she who has yet to be named. Apparently, after helping Harry Potter lie into Voldemort and presumably kicking her bitch-ass husband to the curb, Narcissa Malfoy was elected MP and is now presiding over M's hearing. <laughs> For Harry Potter fans out there, I'm just referring to uh, Helen McCrory, who played Narcissa yeah. in uh, the Harry Potter films. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Voldemort's E, I mean, Gareth Mallory, observes from the same panel. But all this is for naught due to plot. Plot that makes Q incredibly and suddenly unqualified for his job, as he painfully and slowly realizes that he has allowed Silva to hack MI6 via the captured drive. Even Bond has it figured out before him. But Q uses his remaining talents to guide Bond through the London Underground because, yep, you guessed it, Silva has escaped. Silva manages to switch from prison garb to police garb thanks to some helpers, even to arrange an entire subway train to crash through the walls after Bond. Now that's planning. With all this crazy goings-on, M and her defense quotes Tennyson. Silva in costume, with some cronies breaking to the hearing and open fire. She who must not be, not she who has yet to be named, and Mallory, after taking a bull in the shoulder, men for M, return fire just as Bond arrives. Silva's over-elaborate assassination attempt ends in defeat. Tanner rushes M out of the courthouse and into her sedan, into her sedan but Bond, having seen Silva tear off, has hopped into the sedan's driver's seat. Bond and M arrive at a storage locker where he has somehow kept an Aston Martin DB5 Goldfinger style in his locker. With the fan service mode in full effect, they head north ordering Q to leave a dummy trail for Silva to follow. Well, hang on a second. I just I got to jump in here because when I first saw Skyfall, I was an idiot and I was like, how the hell did this happen? But this is how like this makes sense to me now because he won that DB5 in Casino Royale. Oh, that's right, because that, ah. that belonged to Demetrios. That's right. So it's his car. Oh, yeah. That's oh. good, 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 good. 
That's right. Wow. It bothered me the first time because I felt like, how are they, if this is a new Bond, how are they going back and doing this? Why are, why are they doing this? This is silly. Are we meant to believe that this is just a different actor? Because I've been told it's a reboot. I've, everything I'm seeing is a reboot. But after watching these films in quick succession, that's why I, I was able to make the connection. Oh, yeah, he won the car in the poker game. And so he that's had it right. stored away. Yeah, I always thought that was just like fan service. I kind of just kind of like rolled my eyes and said, okay, cool. This is well, pretty so neat. so did I originally, yeah. but I, I yeah, made that connection yeah, this time. I'm exactly the same on that, yeah. yeah. That's cool. But I, I rolled my eyes in a gentle kind of way, not like in a derisive kind of way. I was yeah. just kind of, you know, I was like, okay, here we go. You know, like this is the 50th anniversary. This makes sense. Okay, yeah, yeah. I get it. It's I'll cool. allow it. <laughs> I'm enjoying the fan service. I'm enjoying seeing the Aston Martin in action again, of course, right? Mm-hmm. So while all this is going on, um, Faithful gopher Bill Tanner has had a shitty effing day and doesn't give two Fs about chugging a Heineken in MI6 operations center. Did you guys catch that? I love mm-hmm. that. He's just like choking a, he's chugging down yeah. a Heineken in the no. middle of the operations center because who gives a crap anymore, right? Yeah, um, and because product placement. And product placement, yeah. too. That's <laughs> also a factor. It can even that's funny. it can even infiltrate the inner workings of MI6. <laughs> even Mallory doesn't care, and he goes along with Bond and Q's plan. Yeah, and this this is a good character moment for him too, because this is where we see that okay, this guy this guy could be a friend, you know. And I'm sure you're gonna get to it, and so apologies for stepping on your toes if indeed I am. But it was at this point that I made the connection Mallory is gonna be M because M. Mallory is begins with an M, you know, like I got that and I was like, Oh, here we go. Well, too, and the court and the courthouse sh- sh- shootout scene. Oh, yeah. I was totally like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, they're sending this guy up to be the new M." Like, there's yeah. and and I, was, I even in my mind, I said, "You know what? This guy would be an awesome M if Judy Dench doesn't survive this." You yeah. know, I, I think he'd be an awesome Bond. Yeah, an older Bond. An yeah, older Bond. Yeah, Ray Fiennes is kind of an interesting character. Like, uh, he he was like in his twenties, and he became kind of the boy toy of uh, a, a very good Shakespearean actress. You may have heard of her, uh, Francesca Annis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you remember Cleopatra, she played one of the handmaidens in the movie, but she's best known for playing Lady Macbeth in the Polanski version. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, he was kind of he was he was like I think he was like her lover for like ages actually. Oh and there's like a 20 year, year difference be, be, be between them. Good for her. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, Bond takes M to Skyfall, his family estate. That is before his mother and father died and left him angry orphan mold for M to shape into whatever she wished. After entering the 16th century estate, M is introduced to the gameskeeper Kincaid or simply Albert Finney being a badass. Yep. Bond lets Kincaid in on the plan, kill Silva and his men before Silva kills them. Cool, says Kincaid. Old school traps are set as the, tr- as the three prepare for the big bad's arrival. Silva's first wave comes on the estate like a hunting party. They plan to blow the door in some, with some C4, but Bond's hiding out in the Aston Martin and uses its machine guns as first strike. That was amazing. The remains of the first wave double back, but meet M's shrapnel chandelier bombs and Kincaid's sawed-off shotguns. Bond uses his dad's shotgun to take out a few more guys, and then subverting the trope by picking up one of the goon's assault rifles. I love it. Even notice in movies where they don't ever pick up the, the, the guns, the, the bad guys' guns, oh, they man. just yeah that drives me nuts. Yeah, <laughs> so they subverted that. That was pretty cool. Um, so the, he uses his assault rifle to take out the remainder of the first wave. The second wave is Silva arriving via assault helicopter, uh, blasting music. In fact, it's uh, I think it's a John Lee Hooker tune by the Animals. He blasts the shit out of the old manse. Kincaid and M use the priest's hole to escape the manse via tunnel whilst Bond holds the fort. After tearing into the estate, 
Silva walks up to the house himself and starts lobbing napalm grenades. He sends the helicopter off on another strafing run while Bond, John McClane, some gas tanks, giving us a John Wick vibe as he watches Silva destroy the DB5. Sorry, Severin, you're great and all, but one simply does not destroy a man's vintage car. This is the triggering moment. <laughs> Bond escapes via the priest hole. At That's the also station. fan service, isn't also, it? Yeah, absolutely. Bond escapes via the priest hole as the gas tanks detonate and send the chopper crashing into the manse, taking out all but Silva and one of his men. Bond heads for the chapel across the frozen pond for Kincaid, has brought M, but Silva sticks his remaining crony onto the ice to take on Bond. Silva fires his gun, Bond struggles wrenching the machine gun from the remaining crony, and they fall through the ice into a sequence that really shows us how long someone can hold their breath in ice water whilst trying to drown the guy grappling you. (laughs) Silva then, overtly, as it turns out, commits the classic Bond villain sin of leaving JB to die. JB equals James Bond, not Jack Bauer. Because, you know, Jack Bauer would have already killed these guys and tortured their That's wives right. at this point. <laughs> right. And kicked the heroin addiction. And kicked the heroin addiction, yes, exactly. <laughs> Entering the chapel, even Silva bows to the greatness of the late, great Albert Finney by not killing him. M, on the, M on the other hand? That's another story. Hmm. Turns out that Silva just wanted to murder suicide as Oedipal obsession. It's kind of messed up. M's been fighting off a bullet wound and has been slowly bleeding out, but Silva's faith in his crony comes back to, well, stab him in the back. Silva is like, oh, come on, seriously? He may well have sent Bond a monkey covering his eyes emoji, but he knows now that there can be only one rat standing. Silva dies, what the effing, like a true badass queen to the chapel floor. Oh, and M dies too. Sad. But I'm so pissed about Severin, so IDGAF. The good news is that M dying and all that spares her from readjourning Narcissa Malfoy's boring hearing. And Mallory is a new M, and she who is yet to be named is now named Eve. Money Penny. And judging from his rooftop vigil, James Bond is actually Batman. Here endeth the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> nice work. Thank you. Yeah. I got I think, uh, I think I specifically summarized that film. I think I went over every detail possible that we know no longer need to continue this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So I just want to mention a couple of things that I noticed um, in the film. Little things like uh, what I, my the way I saw everything is like this is about going back to the basics. This is old school, old school in the sense that you know Bond goes back to his roots, uh, and they use the tunnels underneath. So it's kind of going back into the old school ways of MI6. And also there was a, a quote that uh, M said, it's like, we're at war, this is a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it kind of gave that feel like, you know, um, MI6 and the intelligence uh, community is, took a real, you know, uh, drubbing there, if you will, um, having Vauxhall blown up. And so they're just trying to scramble and, uh, you know, get things done. So they had to revert back to the tunnels that was built uh, during the war, the Second World War. And it was really neat to see that showing those catacombs and that sort of underground um, aspect of it. So and I just wanted to I just found a a cool little article. It's actually from 2008, way before the movie was uh, came out. And it was saying that um, one of one of the parts of the underground um, was actually uh, and it's only been recently mentioned that uh, due to the Official Secrets Act. So anyways, one part, it was dug in 1940 um, and basically it was used 
Uh, it was supposed to be used as a as a as a research area, but actually, um, this area it was under apparently this part was under Furtival Street, uh, the King the Kingsway Tunnels, and basically it was used in the Inter-Services Research Bureau, which is a shady outfit that was in fact a front for the research and development arm of MI6, which is known as Q Branch in the Bond films. Mm. So that's kind of interesting, um, and. Uh, I just I really liked how they went back to the uh, those tunnels and it kind of showed it really showed the uh, the audience look what happened you know um, MI6 and they're sort of really uh, scrambling they they have to find another way of uh, of going about this now uh, and so it's really neat, sort of going back old school going using the tunnels and using what they had to, uh, what they had to use back during the Second World War so I really enjoyed that. Uh, also, lots of different other references where, you know, they're going back to uh, um, the house uh, in Skyfall and they were using old weapons. They had, you know, an old double barrel shotgun, like they're going out on a hunt. Um, and uh, he was using the Walther PPK, but that's not old school because he has that uh, the doodad where it's it's only he can fire it. Mm-hmm. Different things like this, which I really liked. Also, the aspect, I know I keep I keep mentioning this, but uh, showing that MI6 was infiltrated. Obviously, this time it was like a cyber attack, but just another sort of example that MI, MI6 is not impervious. And uh, just another reference that uh, even the top intelligence agencies in the world uh, can be infiltrated. And of course, being relevant to the time, it would most likely be a cyber attack that ended up turning into, you know, a bombing. Yeah, yeah. and you know, guys, taking up what you're saying here, it, it, it kind of leads me to pose the question, how realistic is it, um, or is it simply just plot development, or like, sorry, plot necessity? How realistic is it that that tribunal or that hearing where, you know, MI6 has just had this incredible cyber attack, this enormous destructive uh, invasion of privacy, of intelligence, <clears throat> And Judy Dench's M is getting drawn up on how important, you know, the, the field agents are. Like, surely they've got a bigger fish to fry in this, in this, this is I, you know, the fact that their entire organization has been infiltrated, right? It seems to me a little strange that that's the thing, yeah. that's the fish they're trying to fry there in that hearing. Well, they could also be showing, too, I think, just like the, the relative politics of the time as well. I mean, even though you could say that, you know, Helen McCrory's MP there is being very, uh, pop, pop, populist, you know, and yeah. and bringing things out in the open. She also seems like she's. It almost seems like politically motivated as well. What she's doing there, right? Well, I suppose so, but it's also transparently myopic. Like to yeah, me, yeah, exactly. It, I'm know. saying is yeah, it's, it's it's not only myopic, but it seems also like it's, she's. It looked like that character is looked like she's trying to to crucify M and make herself mm-hmm. look good in front of people, right? Like showing that. You know she's she's re- she's ready to, she's ready to become prime minister or something after this. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. seems an ambitious kind of hearing. Yeah. So Je- Jeff, did you come across any um, information regarding? Uh, I was about to say Hitler's bunker. <laughs> did you come across any information regarding Churchill's bunkers uh, with respect to how the the film is supposedly using that old environment? Well, I did find something, and again, it's. Uh... The, this article, it, it's actually it's touching upon the one I mentioned that was from The uh, Economist, the one from 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a little thing here. It was saying that um, with sort of all these different tunnels. Now, this wasn't necessarily um, Churchill's, but they were mentioning here uh, that um, the tunnels were still in secret use after the Battle of Britain uh, had given way to the Cold War. And 
basically under underneath this sort of bicycle route, uh, they still main they maintain this hotline between Eisenhower and Khrushchev. Uh, so they actually had like a it was kind of like a think of it like um, oh, get smart. You know they go underneath and they have the mm-hmm. elevator on this kind of stuff, and they had this sort of. Uh, hotline, this this available area to to have communications in case of something like the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis, which um, which they had used for that as well. It was sort of these sort of like fail safes. So uh, you know that's that's what they were using it for, and it, I guess it's still there in in some way, shape, or form. Apparently, they even made them into in the seventies. They made them into like bars. There's certain areas where they actually have like these underground areas. They were bought out by people, and they made them into restaurants and stuff. Oh, cool. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Um, one other thing I did want to mention is that just about the hacking thing. I want to see, is this possible? You know, when was you know something similar to this? I'm sure there's things that we definitely will never know about, how close it got or how bad they were. Sure. Uh, there, there was an article here. And again, it's fairly recent. It's only from November of 2018 from the register. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know, you know, how good the register is or, uh, you know, I don't know its political uh, which way it leans, yeah. yeah. But uh, I just have a quote here saying that. So the title of the article was saying Britain may not be able to fend off a, a determined cyber attack, uh, which was uh, the, some members of Parliament were saying. Uh, and so just a couple of nuggets here. Uh, they were saying that. Uh, so the Joint Committee on the National Security Strategy has laid into the government for its slapdash approach to IT security, claiming that officials are not acting with urgency and forcefulness that the situation demands. Uh, and then they go on saying, it appears that the government is not delivering on what it, on it with a meaningful sense of purpose or urgency. Its efforts so far certainly fail to do justice to its own assessment that major cyber attacks on the UK and interests are a top tier threat to national security. Um, I would agree and- with that. If my if my school could be considered a microcosm for what you're saying, then yeah, for sure. We've got all these wireless hubs all around our school that were installed, yeah. I'd say, seven or eight years ago. Uh, teachers can't access it. They don't really work. But I tell you what, the kids got in there. The kids got Wi-Fi everywhere they go now because they found a way to get in. And the teachers aren't allowed access to any of this. But these, these, this big Wi-Fi network that no one really controls, the kids are tapping in and out of it all the time. And we're, oh, my God. We can't access it. How porous is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's pretty <laughs> Yeah, but, now, but because, you know, like politics change all the time, like you always get new people in, like it's just something now that's uh, that's just left. It's just left there. I've got a little blinking box up in the corner of my classroom that I can't do anything about, but somehow, <laughs> somehow kids can tap into this stuff, right? So, I mean, it, it, it's funny, but in a sense, what you're saying is correct. And if we were to consider that symbolically, yeah, then the nation isn't prepared for for any of the smarter advances of technology, you know, that a more lazy, just a more laid back approach to technology and ICT is taking. Exactly. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that's just the way it's going now. As much as you still have, you know, IEDs and improvised explosive devices, that kind of thing you have in a, in a, in a large metropolis area or someone driving a truck or anything like that, cyber attacks are there's so much stuff going on that can lead into that right there's little mm-hmm. things like you open up a spam email you click on uh, you click on a, a document and then you put in your credentials and you, you got you know you got a bunch got of fished. malware or you fished or you got um, you know one of those uh, so it, it, it can really sort of uh, just explode mm-hmm. uh, so that, that's the thing it's like cyber cyber crime is a real threat and obviously in the last couple of years uh, with uh, certain certain governments doing it more than others it's becoming quite quite a big issue. Speaking of cyber terrorism, definitely uh, Silva, he fits the profile of cyber terrorist for sure. And considering, you know, like 
Bardem dyed his hair blonde for the role and everything yeah. like that, he does kind of resemble Julian Assange a little bit as well. <laughs> he was asked about that in an interview, and he oh, really? denied that that was one of the inspirations. He said that, you know, people will perceive what they'll perceive, but uh, when he and Mendez were kind of considering... Uh, they, they were considering a number of real-life people. I can't help but wonder if Donald Trump was one of them with that hair, uh, <laughs> through the hairpiece. But uh, no, Assange wasn't one of them. Uh, he, did say, he did say as much. Now, I mean, you know, who knows, right? It's very similar, though, because like of WikiLeaks and, you know, mm-hmm. re- re- revealing government information and whatnot in the age of Assange and Snowden. And it's very similar it, it, to what he did. It, yeah, it's very similar. Yeah, it, it, yeah like... Yeah you know, uh, basically exposing all the operatives, you know, around the world and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to ask both of you, because, I mean, you're both talking about it. This film, six, seven years ago now, we, we, we couldn't really consider it on the cutting edge of uh, talking about cyber terrorism in this way. But the problem has has only grown since then, you know? It really has, yeah. yeah. Yep. I mean, now you have, you know, like the the, the Democratic National Committee yeah. being hacked and whatnot. And apparently, you know, you have uh, Roger Stone meeting with Assange for details on WikiLeaks. Like, this is still ongoing, right? It just gets bigger and bigger. Mm. And then think of all the hacking that could have occurred with the American election, supposedly, right? Yeah, it just goes on and on. Yeah, it really does. It does. That's so what- definitely topical in, 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 in that way. And I don't care what the director, what that, sorry, the director, but that critic said about there's no stakes in this movie. I totally disagree in, in, in that context. And I think this kind of highlights that. It does. And, and, I, and that's what I liked about showing that, um, the cyber terrorism aspect and and uh, just showing he's going to out all these people. And then, he, he, you know, it's, it's interesting because it just shows that, especially uh, Vox Hall, you know, the MI6 headquarters, um, it it could happen anywhere, and it really can. I mean, lots of other places have been compromised, exactly just like the the DNC thing um, with uh, WikiLeaks, all that kind of stuff. No, no one is, uh, no one's bulletproof here, mm-hmm. and that's where that's where uh, terrorism is going. Which is why I find you know the plot dumbness of Q in that sequence where yeah, he where, where, where he basically is, he's decrypting the drive that that he got from Silva. But really, what he did was he unleashed a cyber just, terrorist attack. Yeah. That, you know, like it was a, it was, I don't know. I just kind of found that was kind of a bit of a, uh, of a, of a leap. You know, that he would make that mistake. Well, I think that too was a little bit of plot and theme because, as you guys yeah. intimated earlier, there's a lot of old and new thematic going on. There's, there's exactly. a conflict. There's the battle yeah. between old and new. And in the conversation that he has with Q, Bond reminds him, well, sometimes you need to know when to pull the trigger and sometimes you need to know when not to pull the trigger. And your That's gadgets true. your gadgets won't tell you that. So the field operatives are still necessary. And then mm-hmm. we see Q make the mistake by letting that in, as you just said, Josh. And I think yeah, that all true. that's all kind of there for that reason, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. Like, I think like even though like that was a moment of plot dumbness for the sake of the writing, I think because there was thematics involved with that, mm. it, it it makes it easy to ignore, I guess, as a fault in 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 the film story. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I mean, you guys got any problem if I go back to the very beginning of this and just I just got a few yeah. observational notes as I was watching, and I, I want to ask you a little bit about some of the stuff that I saw and see what you think yeah. about it. Um. The, the the very very beginning right the pre-title sequence uh, that is that's really exciting stuff I really enjoyed it yes and I, one of the things though that that I was really struck by and at first I thought this is just ridiculous right Bond jumps into Caterpillar and the excavator and he starts ripping out you know the train car and all that stuff 
Like, that is the type of thing that you would have seen in an earlier James Bond film. That totally yeah. is. But what makes yes. it different to me is is the jump cutting, or the, perhaps the better term, the cross cutting to M in her absolute steel seriousness. Like, she is... She's there on the line as all of this is going on. And she, Judy Dench commands the presence and she holds she the scene and she is so serious about it that I'm thinking that this is the same kind of James Bond action that Roger Moore's character might have done. But it's done in such a way that M behind it is giving me a bit more um, investment in it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, because, oh, absolutely. because you had like the Volkswagens coming off the train, right? And M's like, what is that? And Moneypenny is, is like... Uh, I think so. I think uh, VW Beetle or something like that. Like yeah. the ridiculous of the scene is then contrasted by the gravity that M gives back in London. Does it work for you? Does it, it does. I, I think it, it does. I, I think it's a great. It, I, I think it's a great contrast. It adds. It adds. Well, one for the action scene, it adds uh, a bit of suspense because M is at the mercy of just listening to what's going on. She doesn't see, so mm. she's really she's worried that she's like, what's all, is is this happening to Bond or is he doing the damage or is mm. the damage happening to him? She's at the mercy of just. She wants to know what's going on, but she's also like, what is going on? <laughs> am, yeah. I cor- am I correct in saying that Judy Dench's M has another scene like this in a, in, in, in a film? Is it a Brosnan film maybe where she's she's watching or listening to Brosnan do something similar? Is, Possibly. Does, does Tomorrow Never Dies not begin with her at a distance as well? Yeah, when he's taking out that arms bazaar. Yeah, yeah, the, okay. yeah the, the arms bazaar, like in the in the Caucasus somewhere, I, I believe. No, in the Urals, I, I believe I believe it was. All right, right. Well, we'll and, see when we get to it. But there's and she has going that on. fight with like the with the admiral or, or, or whatever. Okay, it's coming back to me now. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I don't. Um, yeah, well, well, I don't remember that film very well, but I do. I don't think that this is the first time that there's been some excitement that M's part of where Bond is, you know, kind of. On the other end of it, you know. Anyway, uh, listen, Jeff, you're pretty switched on to the whole military side of things. And I I don't know about if you know much about um, where terrorists get their weapons or what kind of weapons they are. But my wife's comment led me to this. We were watching this together. And uh, Patrice, right? When Patrice and Bond are are in that chase and... He comes out the car. Sarah asked, "Why does that gun have balls on it?" Right. So yeah, no, it's, it's true. And what's interesting like, what is, is that, that? So that's like a, a, it's a weird, like honestly, I, I don't know the specific it, name. It's almost but, like a Tommy gun drum, but mm-hmm. but, but as oh, yeah, like it's a pistol. It's a semi-automatic pistol, and because you know how the remember the guns in in the Matrix where it looked like it was just like a Glock pistol, but oh, yeah, they yeah. full auto. They anyway, so that has like a full auto attachment, and that's basically like. I think it's uh, about 100 rounds in that thing. So I think it's 50 on both sides, and it does look – it's so stupid. Like, I don't know why anyone would have a pistol with that. Like, why, I don't know why you'd have a pistol with that. Like, I think – I don't know. I, I think because you can break the you – I think it's probably because you can carry those things, like, because they're probably very thin, each of the clips, the drum clips, no, right? No, they're, like, this thick, though. Yeah. They're, like – it's because it's I, I, saw something, I think recently I believe we were watching um, the Punisher on Netflix yeah and Jigsaw there he had the same kind of gun yeah but he, he I think he had a he had, he had like a machine gun attached to it though yeah exactly he and they also have attachments for like shotguns as well it, yes. it's like a, it's kind of like a drum clip but anyways the guy had a pistol and I just it, it's I don't a pistol even, with balls on it well no it's true that. that's what it is it's a full phallus if you think about it it's like having two uh, Tommy gun like drum clips side by side which I don't even know how you could carry that. Hmm. Did he just pull that out of his coat? Because that's I, impressive. I, don't, I can't remember. I'd have to see it again. But he certainly got out the car and he had it in his hand. Yeah. Here's an aside. 
Uh, I think that Patrice is up there with like Red Grant in terms of like, you know, uh, menacing physical presences in a Bond film. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he. Well, not like, not not I up like there with like. I'm not saying he's like Robert Shaw's character category, but I just found him a very um, imposing character, and he had a presence, even though he had, he hardly, or no, he didn't really say say a word. To be honest with you. Yeah, he, he's a silent mm-hmm. guy in that respect, yeah. and he I doesn't he, say much. But no, he doesn't, except for but, he screams when he falls. But yeah. although th- that moment when he sees like uh, Bond using the uh, the excavator, or whatever, he has like a kind of like a what the fuck kind of look on his face, mm-hmm. you know. And I just I, I just found that funny, and I and I, I believed it in that moment that he's like, okay. <laughs> so is that, is that kind of like um, what we saw Craig do in Casino Royale, running through the wall while the other guy yeah. is sort of sliding through the cracks. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I felt like that, but with the scene with the excavator, I really it did kind of remind me of that whole running through the wall scene. Yes, I know it was just um, pl- um, plaster. What, what did you say it was before? It was plasterboard, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't take <laughs> away from that. <laughs> but, but anyway, so I can but, see that that really that really upset your your whole take on know. it, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I'm saying about this time though is that in the same kind of concentration that Bond is really like in the moment, is that he gets shot by the guy through the glass and like mm-hmm. he he feels it you can see it like you know how sometimes bottle like he'll take something and he'll be fine he got shot and you can see like he it really hurt him they got him in the shoulder but he still just like you know literally just presses on mm-hmm. uh and uh, i i really enjoyed that like he just had he just was focused and you know all the stuff going around him he got shot but he just kept going he just kept using you know working and he had to use the two controllers uh, so he was using it with like a broken shoulder or whatever he had, and I, I really enjoyed that. Cool. I guess I, I don't think you guys agree with, agreed with me, and I kind of share that sentiment in my summary. Is did anyone find that like Severine was just kind of just like discarded in this movie? Yeah, yeah, she was. She had a tragic, like Fleming Bond girl history, you know, yeah. like. And I, I just found like yeah, like she was just discarded, and the fact that she was like killed and then and bond was rescued like minutes later i just found like yeah yes yeah. it's almost like they didn't <laughs> all, know what... all he had to do was not drink the scotch right yeah yeah it, it seems to me that i think maybe they in terms of writing it they didn't know what to do with their character after that sequence i maybe. think you're right because it was never about her it's always about no. judy dench yeah yeah or, and, and that, maybe that was the red herring that's that you know that's what that would be the bond girl for the movie right because they even advertised the the, the actress as the Bond girl for the movie. Mm-hmm. But really, in the end, the Bond girl, as John Logan said, was M. Yeah, and she was. And I mean, she wasn't... Severine was not a, a, a great Bond girl, but the, the story never makes her. She's a striking actress. She's yeah. a, a, a very, you know... She's very impressive when she's there, I think, but her story is, is a little bit weak. Um, yeah, she, it's a very she actually would Bond be, girl. Josh, if you think about it, she is really more like a Fleming Bond girl in a sense because she's got this backstory of yes. sexual abuse and, yeah. you know, is very much a victim and doesn't feel like she can escape things. Yeah. You know, she she needs a magic penis, right? Yeah, she, she does need the magic penis to save her, absolutely. Apparently, um, there was a bunch of, like, women's rights groups or whatever. Uh, they attacked Skyfall. These people weren't fans of, fan, fan of the movie because, because uh, that Severin was a sex trade worker um, Bond was kind of taking advantage of her. Hmm. Interesting. I can see that. I can. I can appreciate that angle. 
Yeah, so so it's mm -hmm. kind of a bit a, a bit ambiguous there, and then the fact that she gets discarded probably even set them, you know, sets it kind of sets that sentiment even more so, in my well, opinion. I don't know how ambiguous it really is because, as you said in your summary, he just jumps into the shower with her. That's a little bit more than sex pest to me. Like he just gets in there and takes advantage of her. Why? Because she was once uh, a hired girl. Like. Is she an owned woman now just because she was in the Macaw sex trade? Is she still just going to give it up easily because she feels a little less threatened around him than someone else? Like there is this, the, the idea that once a hooker, always a hooker. And I don't like that about the way she's portrayed. Yeah, I agree. Like I found that like, in the scene when they're in the, in the casino together. I mean, the actress was really great. The The dialogue was fantastic. And you got a, you got an idea about how scared mm -hmm. she was of Severine. Uh, sorry, of uh, Silva. And... Uh, it was conveyed quite well and you never really got the sense though that it was uh like a sexual kind of meeting that they were having you know like 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 there there was chemistry but i never really got the sense that you know that she wanted to bang bond you know she she wanted to get out of her situation yeah and maybe, but maybe in a way maybe she was trying to seduce him to help him and like unconsciously to do so i don't know it's very i, I think there is am, am, ambiguity to her motivation than the bonds and Bond's motivations there. Well, there's also lack of time on screen. And, and I suppose I should, uh, or in the script, and I guess I should correct myself. She's not, it's not once a hooker, always a hooker. It's once a sex slave, right? I mean, she was a victim in, in this trade. So, yeah. Uh, but th th I think that the subtle implication that she does, she's had a lot of sex, therefore she'll easily have sex with Bond. Like it, it's there in the story if you want to look for it. And I don't think you have to look too far. So that's a stroke against for me in terms of gender representation. Because yeah. you got you got a really strong woman in M, you have a budding strong woman in Eve, uh, and then you've got this just the beautiful girl that Bond does actually uh, sleep with, is the one who's easy to take advantage of. You know, like that's I don't know, I don't like that. But yeah, it's a bit uh, murky for sure. A bit murky. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a bit murky. It's a bit it's a bit of a stretch. I mean, I liked her, and she did command. The, the scene that she was in, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, well, what did you think of her cigarette ash, by the way? That was really distracting to me when I was watching this. The thing is like six inches long. She's got the <laughs> cigarette. Did you notice that? Did you notice how I see, long I did, that cigarette I didn't notice that, but that's... Oh, man. that's Next time I, you watch that scene, take when, a look at the smoke, cigarette. Yeah, well, when, she's, when she's in the bar, like, uh, smoking the cigarette, and and how she ex and she exhales the smoke... I was totally reminded of uh, in Blade Runner where Deckard is interviewing Rachel for the Void Comp test. Oh, yeah. The visuals were very similar to that. Uh -huh. So I remember watching that movie at the time, Skyfall, going, you know what? Whoever's directing or doing this, they could probably – it reminded me of Blade Runner. And so enough, Roger Deakins ended up being cinematographer yeah, for uh, Blade Runner 2049. Well, Interesting. Who, who did the cinematography for uh, the original Blade Runner? Oh goodness gracious! It wasn't. Uh, oh man, you, you just trip, trip, it wasn't Dante Spinotti. I don't think. Um, anyway, it's by the by. I just I just wondered if maybe there was a connection there. I, very very unlikely that there is. Oh, uh, Jordan Cronenweth. All right. No, uh, he no, also no. did um, Alien, I believe, for Ridley Scott. All right. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, what, what did you think of Silva as like a big talker? Like, did, was that okay? Like, did you see did you see him as just being another in a long line of big supervillain talkers? Because he does, as you say, he has that long extended held yeah. scene when he enters and he talks his whole story. He's always talking. He wants people's he he wants people's attention. He wants to hold the stage. He wants their sympathy. He wants you know them to understand why he's doing what he's doing. And you know, you bastards, this, you bastards, that. Like, there's a real menace, but it's all talk, right? It's, it's kind of like talk, the, but it's kind of like the internalized talk. the Bond villain cliche traits into a character in a way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like he likes talking, and and I point out, you know, that the sin he committed by leaving, you know, that uh, crony with Bond under under the ice is what is really what did him in in the end. Um, again, yeah, he has that classic Bond villain talk or whatever. But I think they were highlighting that because you have this very deliberate. Just, just holding that shot for the longest time yeah. as uh, as he approaches towards yeah. the, the camera and the monologue. And um, that's a bit, of, I think, of it's, – it's a bit arty, um, but I think it works for the character. Oh, yeah. And it seems like they're highlighting the fact that he is a talker, in my, in my opinion, that this guy is the Bond villain of the movie. They're kind of like almost like underlining that over and over again just but, with that sequence. But James Bond himself is not the target of this film. No. I mean, M could have sent anybody, right? Yeah, M, is, M is the target of the film. So should we maybe move on a bit and get some talk about his, Silva's relationship with M or, and his motivation here? Because to yeah. me, I kind of agree with that critic uh, who was saying that all he did wrong was want something a little bit too much as an agent. He wanted to get you know behind the Chinese and and kind of take advantage of a situation. I mean, and fine, strike him back a bit for that. But I mean, to trade him over, that seemed a yeah. bit harsh. Yeah. Well, it yeah. seems well, it seems like they wanted those other, but she got four guys other in agents. return. Yeah. Yeah. So it's again is what she says. It's like she tells Bond she t- exactly. after he returns from the dead. She tells him that you know like I could save you or I could save all those all, other all, all, all those other agents. Right. Yeah. So it's 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 like uh, Kirk. You know, it's like the 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 needs of the of the many outweigh the needs of the few. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. I agree with Emma's uh, mentality there. To be honest with you, that's pretty much what they would do. I think. I mean, not that I've ever been in that situation, but that to me. As uh, as bad as it sounds for the individual, in this case Silva, it would probably be what they would do. I also so, kind of reminded was of Die Another Day when uh, Bond is turned over to the Korean, where, where Bond is in the custody okay. of, of the Koreans, and they actually get him out of it in the end. So, do you see Silva's motivation? Like, do you guys like that, and do you ride it nicely throughout this well, story? I, I see because he's kind of crazy, so it it works. And then obviously, with the craziness, is that he he sort of like. Uh, it kind of goes off in a way, and he he has sort of this revenge aspect to it, and uh, you know he has the whole um, M mother complex, and so I, it doesn't bother me. I actually I, I I really enjoyed him as a as a villain, and I liked I was pretty captivated when he was talking. I gotta say, <laughs> I, I believe I I believe that um, he feels betrayed. I got and I, I understand why he feels betrayed, oh, right? Yeah. So like there's a dirty p- political thing that he became a victim of or M had to basically, you know, play the political game and hand this guy over and he did it he didn't did exceed his orders, right? And 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 so and, and so he didn't follow his orders. So in a way, that was his own fault, but at the same time I understand why he feels betrayed. 
And I think also the fact that, you know, he'd been to his cyanide capsule and burned his mouth out. Yeah. I think that definitely caused him psychological damage as well on top of that, of that betrayal. Yeah. Like he could have been able to live with that betrayal, I, I, I think, if, if he had been to a cyanide capsule and then that was it, you know? But the fact that he was kind of like resurrected as something else because he survived the cyanide capsule into this monster of, of what he used to be. I think that was conveyed quite well in the movie. What if what if he was also annoyed that they they were going to give him up, and then, on top of that, the government gives him a cyanide castle that doesn't even kill him. He's like, come on, guys, help yeah. me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think the fact too that the the Silva that bit in the cyanide capsule and 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 would was supposed to have died. I don't think that particular Silva would have would be outing you know yeah. like the other MI6 agents the way that he was. Unless he didn't be go become deranged because of his situation, you know what I mean? Yes, mm-hmm. I would think mm-hmm. Well, a couple of other things I picked up on. I wonder if, uh, in terms of story, did you guys pick up on the uh, "Live and Let Die" homage? Because I think there are a lot of homages in this. I think there's a lot of references back to the you, earlier. You mean artists. the uh, leap crocking, or so? Sorry, the leap Komodo dragon. <laughs> yeah, dragon. yeah. You got that one. Okay, you got the leap Komodo, right? That's good. What yeah. about the in the same scene, the uh, the gold finger throwbacks? Um, I don't think I did. The guy that he's fighting is like basically odd job, isn't he? Oh. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Kind okay. of yeah. He was, yes. he, he was yeah, definitely he was right. definitely kind of an odd job guy. That's definitely true. Yeah, that's true. I also found as you know the the production design in that sequence from Macau, like that whole casino was built for that movie, like and that that looked like something that Ken Adams would have put together. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. It it did look quite big. It it kind of felt a little flimsy though too. Like it could be knocked down with a wind. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. I, I, I agree. It, it, it's, I, it's true. I like the camera work in that scene, following, kind of tracking and twisting. It's quite neat. Oh, yeah, that yeah. was really good. Yeah. Um, okay. What about this one, guys? Did you pick up on the um, the vintage of the McClellan Scotch? That no, uh, I did not. Silva. Oh. Had... No. No, I didn't. Ah, oh, man, I wish I did. Nineteen sixty-two. Ah. Oh, okay. okay. So fiftieth so th- anniversary. Yeah. Mm. Very good. Yep. And did, what about the Hemingway reference later in the story? I know I'm jumping ahead here now, and maybe I just picked this one up myself, but I, I think it's it's a plant. It, it seems a little bit too obvious. What's the Hemingway reference? I'm sorry. It has to do with um, Albert Finney and his Kincaid. The shot, the shot off shotgun? <laughs> where did all the guns I never, go? I know we're going where, into morbid territory there, but... <laughs> where did the guns go? No, you're not going into morbid territory. Oh, some guy in Idaho. Yeah, a gun collector in Idaho bought all the guns, and of course, Ketchum, Idaho is where Hemingway ended his life with a shotgun. Oh, oh okay. And Kincaid nice. basically nice. looks like Hemingway. He does look like Hemingway, it's true, yeah. yeah he he does look like Papa. Um, I was going to say, too, is that I, I liked how uh, Finney said that line, you know, like, some place called Idaho, like it's some kind of like fictional, fictional land, land somewhere, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... Anyway, I picked up on those things. Um, a couple of other things here too, but I'm, I'm quite eager, Jeff, because I know you, you often have to, to take off a little early on these days. So you got anything you want to share with us? Again, it was I really enjoyed the feel of this film. Like one, uh, the cinematography was great and there were some scenes. Now, I haven't seen Blade Runner 2049, but uh, I've seen clips of it. And so I must say that the assassination scene when uh, Bond is watching the guy get his, his brains uh, added to that, that painting – 
um, that whole fight scene, it, it looked some of the the, the shots of, uh, of of Craig with a, you know his collar up like a trench coat and a pistol. It felt like like Blade Runner right there in the colors. It just yeah yeah. I, I, I just thought like wow. You know when Josh mentioned that, I was like yeah, you're not kidding. This could look even you know, when they're driving through Shanghai. Uh, and just the colors, it you know, it looks so futuristic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. And something else about about that whole sequence, really. You know, throughout these Craig films, I'm sure I've said it a couple times here on the show with you guys, and I know I've said it to Sarah, is that I find Daniel Craig such an interesting-looking actor. He's such an interesting-looking yes. person. But I'd never felt that he looks or feels terribly comfortable in these tuxes that he's wearing. He just doesn't seem to fit them. I don't know if it's the short hair, though. What it is that makes it, it makes it weird for me. But in everything else he wears, all the outrigging stuff, all the night clothes, all of the, the, the more casual dress stuff, I think he looks fantastic. That double-breasted yeah, coat with the high collar in the Shanghai stuff, he just looks so smart in that. And he looks yeah, like yeah, a real he menacing He like a Roger touch, Moore you know? in, a, in a tux guy. He, he seems like more like suits. a, he's a Steve McQueen kind of style, you know? Yeah, I think you're right, Josh. I yeah. would definitely pick up on that and yeah. I think he's that type of bond and I, I do like what I, what I remember he had on in the train inspector which was kind of like another homage right to an earlier yes. bond but yeah. I liked that that sort of white uh, coat he looked really good in that but in black tux I just don't think he suits it man I agree no. I agree I do like him because I think he had like a gray suit and a gray tie in this one with a white shirt and it was like yeah. one of those kind yeah. of skinnier yeah. Like that, the new style, sort of the skinnier, like the early '60s kind of retro uh, suits, yeah. and I really like him in that. And he spends the first half hour of this film in civilian clothes, looking really haggard too. Yeah, yeah. And he's, you know, he's obviously in, in fantastic shape. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's just thought I'd get your your guys' no, uh, no, take on that. Yeah. One thing I forgot about from the from the theatrical experience I had, and then I watched it again on Blu-ray recently, was that moment where. Silva confronts um, M in the chapel. Oh yeah, and you realize this whole thing is about a murder suicide in a way. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. he's. It's. I think Javier Bardem did a really good job there, showing the conflict in him that, you know, that he he's so betrayed and he's so deranged by it. But after she's dead, I mean, what what other purpose does he have? I think that's what he's thinking to himself. You know what I mean? It's like his whole derangement and his madness is just basically what drives him to yeah, kill M. But then after that, he wants to kill himself as well. I just found yeah. that very interesting. I found the movie built that up very well. Yeah, I mean, his his insistence yeah. that she's left alone for him uh, yeah. drives at that point, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And it kind of, to me, it's a bit different than a lot of other Bond villains. You know, there's not this, this global scheme to take, you know, this global scheme or this um, EMP device or, you know destabilizing the world economy or something like that. This guy just wanted to deal with his derangement, his own demons in his own way, you know, and, but, but, you know, being the callous figure that he's become, you know, screw anyone else who gets in his way. Do you guys think that the camera work in this film uh, accentuates Judy Dench's age? Like they, it really works to emphasize her fatigue. Like, I think this film deliberately tries to make her or to yet to accentuate her age. I think I think I think the point is is they should have because of what was happening in the film. They don't want to really make her. I mean, if they made her all made up, maybe at the beginning, but after everything went uh, it went down with uh, 
you know, MI6, then there's no, why would she have time to put on eyeliner and foundation and, mm-hmm. and contour her cheekbones? There's, she doesn't have time. Well, no, you're <laughs> right. But I, but again, what I'm asking is about Sorry. the camera work. Does, does the camera focus on her in close up? Does it, does it, does it kind of accentuate the wrinkles and the fatigue? Do, does Mendez ask her to look and to perform her lines with uh, a tiredness that we haven't seen before? I, I would think maybe yes. Uh, that's where I'm going. With. Yeah, I, would agree. I, I think they're definitely incurring that. And, yeah, they're they're definitely insinuating, you know, that she that, that she's haggard and run yes. down and whatnot. And her situation, she's dealing with, you know, political uh, political fallout. Yes. Pro, you know, you know, being um, set to retirement and whatnot, and then dealing with the death of all those agents. She has a lot of stress going on in her mind right now. I'm, I'm I'm sure. And I'm sure that there's a, the reason for that is that because then they're probably going to slowly show that the other, that Mallory is going to be. Yeah. M. So then they're showing mm-hmm. the age of the new one, and then showing you know uh, the young one. So maybe that's part of it too. One one thing to point out too is that you know that that thing where uh, she tells Silva, you know, like regret is unprofessional or whatever, right? But I think deep down she has lots of regrets. Oh, sure. That scene where in where she's in the hearing and she's reading out uh, like the she says my 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 late husband you know was 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 very into poetry and you know and despite my best efforts you know like i saw what he was seeing about the poetry as well and she reads out the speech from tennyson and i think I, I think that was a very good moment because it showed i think that she regrets partly the light that she had and that she couldn't really know her husband the way that she wanted to you know it was just there's just little moments like that i found that really brought her character to life yeah what did you think of the? Um, all I also, also kind of like too. I, I was just gonna say, sorry, Scott. Okay. Um, when she's with Kincaid, I got a feeling that Kincaid. I, I don't know. I think he was trying yeah. to like flirt, flirt yeah, with her, her, flirt with her a, 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 a little bit. Really, you got that? And she, seemed, she seemed almost demure in the scenes at, at, at Skyfall. But it's not like a demure, like she was like weak or whatever. No. It seemed like she just knew what was coming. She yeah. had this feeling. And Judy Dench conveyed that. And the camera helped convey that as well, in my opinion. Yeah. She's fantastic in this film. I mean, she's oh, really man. good. So and good. I think she's probably... And this film doesn't necessarily underline the point. But uh, I think she's probably one of the best actresses of her generation. Oh, hundred oh, percent. Yeah, sure, yeah. Sure. you had an argument from me there. No, and yeah. getting her, getting her onto a series like this adds so much credibility oh, to yeah. the to the stories. I mean, even those ridiculous moments in the Pierce Brosnan films where you know we've got hang gliding through old outer space or whatever the hell he does. I can't even remember what they get him to do. I think you're thinking of like uh, ice flow or something I, like that. I don't know what I'm thinking of, but I just know ice that I just know that things are more grounded when she's around, and this is. This is really good. Like the the falling action of this story is is great, and although it is a little Home Alone, I don't have a problem watching Bond do this. Like, oh. because it does reinforce the old and the new. You know, Silva's yeah. bringing yeah. all the technology, all the hired uh, all the hired guards, and and the sort of yeah. private army, and he's busting up light bulbs to set his booby traps. Yeah, that's right? great. I, I thought that was fantastic. Exactly. I, I would have liked I, to have a bit more payoff with that, to be honest. Like a little more lingering yeah. in that stuff would have been good. Yes, I, I, I definitely agree. I think that sequence should have been should have been more extended, in my opinion. Yeah, but we've and already think, got a two and a half hour movie, don't we? Yeah. Yes, but ultimately, yeah, I, I would have know. loved to see a little more. But I mean, of that. they could have cut the chase to the London subway up mm-hmm. a little bit. I would prefer, you know, not to have a train, a subway car mm-hmm. come crashing through the wall at Bond and have more action at Skyfall, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you think of the the tunnel? Uh, that whole sequence as a whole, I mean, I, I think it's the one part of the movie that I just I can't come quite to love. Uh-huh. It's funny you mention that, man. Uh, wait, me me wait, too. Uh, wait, 
I'm sorry, what tunnel are you referring to, like, the, the priest hole, or are you referring to, like, the London Underground? Oh, sorry, no, I should have been more clear. No, I was referring to the, the, the London Underground. That That's the part of the story that I felt like was, uh, I, I, I felt it a bit dragged on, you know? Dragged on, and I felt also, like, I was just incredulous through, through, through most of it, how he was so elaborate, that escape, that he set up, like, really, like, the, usually, like, the, the, the the train bomb like i just sorry the bomb that released the, the train like i just found that whole sequence kind of um too 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 incredible yes and didn't fit the tone of the rest of the movie in my opinion yeah it's almost like who's this guy the joker you know what yeah. i mean so i agree with the critic on that assessment yeah there is a certainly a, a convenience to absolutely everything you know there's a lot of variables that could make one of his steps on the streets of london with the trains of london go wrong and none nothing goes wrong during this entire this 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 embellished uh, escape route, but yeah, yeah. Okay, well, seeing as you guys mentioned it, then what do you make of the um, of the escape tunnel? The was it the nuns hole? Is that how you call it? The, the priest hole. <laughs> Let's call either one of them is wrong by all sorts of stretches, but yeah, uh, yeah nuns hole, priest hole, yeah, uh, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. During the Reformation, priests, uh, oh, yeah, ca yeah. Ca Catholic priests would, would would be hidden between the walls, and they would preach to the Catholic lords within, um, so that you know they would they weren't aware that they were practicing Catholicism when you know Protestantism is the new big thing, right? And being Catholic was illegal at the time. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, what did you make of that priest's hole tunnel? Uh, I think it fit. I yeah. think it well that they the age they, of that. they thematically backed it up with Bond hiding as a boy in there when his parents died. Mm -hmm. So him escaping that hole was very symbolic, in my opinion. There are some heavy foreshadowed set pieces in this story, though, aren't there? There is. Like oh, that, yeah. that being one of them. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's... Let me just have a look here. Anything else yeah. you guys want to bring up? Oh, I know. One more thing. Sorry. You, was it you or was it Jeff? One of you talked about the, the idea of picking up guns. Where was that? Where did that oh, chat come from? Again? Yeah. But we both agree. I mentioned that's... in my summary about how Bond actually uses the, the weapons yeah. left by the villains. Yeah. Instead of just all of a sudden yeah. just, going, you know, just going into MacGyvering something. That's oh. right. And I like yeah. that too. I like that a lot. And, and it, made, it, it made for me... Uh, a mental image of this could have been a great GoldenEye 64 level because that's exactly what you do, right? You pick up the guns of whoever you kill and you well, can exactly. use common sense. It's yeah. common sense. It's common Look, sense, yeah. If you if you have one pistol and two magazines, let's just say argument's sake, you know, if you use both those magazines and you're running away and you're running past all the guys you killed that had better guns than you, but you just keep running, uh, why? Why don't, mm -hmm. like, if there's no one technically behind you, why don't you grab a gun <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and a couple of magazines? You know, like, I just, it, it never makes sense to me. Yeah. I do know, though, something, guys, that irked me a little bit during this whole um, ending, okay? Or not, the false ending of okay. uh, Skyfall. And, and it has to do with uh, the, the expectation that there's no one else around. Like, I know Scotland... And I, I know the north of Scotland, and I know even the Highlands, you know, very isolated. But there is no fucking way that all of these army surplus guys, this helicopter, oh, yeah. loudspeaker, like this thing wouldn't have been picked up as it's crossing the glen, that no one's going to hear the gunfire, that this entire place explodes, the car first, <laughs> then the building, the whole place is on fire, and no one shows up. Like, that, that's a little bit unbelievable. In real time, if the attack happened in, like, six minutes, maybe, but someone somewhere is going to hear this stuff and is going to call alert to it. 
Yeah. Yeah, I wondered about that. Yeah. Given that the whole like the lead up to the whole thing was urban and there's so many people around, I'm I'm going to use the people around me. I'm going to disguise myself. I'm going to drop in here, head in there, put on the costume, hop the subway, using the cloak and dagger everywhere around you. Now we've got a, a, an isolated environment, but trust me, man, the north of Scotland's not that isolated. No, I, I think I think what you're looking for is just some gratuitous shots of police men being like m- mowed down by Silva's helicopter or something like that. You know, I, do you know what, Josh? I think you're absolutely right. And I think the reason <laughs> I want that is because I'm still at the end of the day and I have to recognize this in myself. I'm a product of uh, and a child of the Moore and the the Dalton where we've always got to deal with cops in some way. Always. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, tr- it's yeah. true. Those, those pesky like, cops interfering with things, you well, know? Well, even if they had a couple of cops just get, like, shot, like, it, like if they just did sort of, like, a, a passing shot or just showing, like, flaming cop cars... Yeah, where did this, where did this helicopter take off from? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. At least if they had, like, a flaming cop car or two, like, on the way, like, if <laughs> yeah, you just... Yeah. You could just see, well, hey, okay, at least... And that's quite the helicopter. You know, that That's like yeah. a Merlin. It's, 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 like a, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. That's not a sea king, that's for sure. No, no, definitely no not a sea it, king. it wouldn't have made it that far. <laughs> exactly. And I, I mean, like, just just you know, getting off the ground. Yeah. Anyway, okay, cool. Look, uh, are we ready to do our scoring, guys? You you want to? Yeah, yeah. Let's let, let, let's get uh, Jeff here um, on the docket. All right, money penny story. So you got, when you were asking Josh about story and uh, you know and acting and what you know where you uh, and it's funny because it, it made me sort of rethink of how I how I uh, rated it. So I'm giving the atmosphere ten because it, it's just it, the atmosphere of that film is just absolutely amazing as a, as a Bond film and as a film anyways. It's just it had there's so much uh, just so fe- there's a lot of feeling and just the different uh the tones in that mm-hmm. film i felt it was you know like the revenge um and it, it, the atmosphere of that film even if you just look at the cinematography as well uh there's so many different feels to it and i thought it was just it, it uh it did it very very well so i'm gonna give it full marks for the atmosphere well i i gave it 9.5 so okay. I, i'm right with you man i think that what you're saying is absolutely correct. And, of course, you're dealing with a more art house director. He's going to bring yes. his whole cloud, his whole spirit, that whole yep. feeling with him. And he does it, right? And he oh, does yeah. it well. Now, to me, there's no question that this film is a 10 in atmosphere. It's just, yes. it's just, do you like what his atmosphere is? That's do you it. like the music colors? Question, yeah, right? do you exactly. like the filters, the blue? Do you like everything he's I doing? I love that. If you I do, would. you got to go 10. Yeah. Now, the reason I, I struck it down a half mark, and trust me, this is not one of my favorite scores, although I do like it, but it's because of the music, and I still want more interplay between that impressive title song and the score. And I know it's not Thomas Newman's fault, because he received, or I shouldn't say he received it, but Adele's song was completed very late in his own scoring sessions, and there's only one cue in the film, and it's during the, the Komodo Dragon stuff, during the, the yeah, casino yeah. stuff, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the Macau sequence, yeah. That's right. Not- that's, that's the only scene. I was like, wow, this is like a John Barry moment here, you know? Yeah, that's it. But, that's, but the, what I'm saying is that's the only moment that yeah. we get the title song in the orchestral score. And part of that is, of course, not Newman's fault. But I would really yeah. like to see more, less of a, you go away and write a star song 
and more about, okay, Thomas Newman, uh, write a song with this artist. You know, let's not just leave the big name artist to do it all and then ship it to you with a day or two left of your scoring session. Let's yes. let's make it part of the thematic because in terms of atmosphere, music is a big part of this. And this is not a great score. It could have been helped incredibly, even in its good parts, by having more textual reference to the title, I felt. Yeah, and that's the only I, reason I took it down half a mark. Everything else, I'm right with Jeff. Fair. This and, no, and with you, Josh. This is a great film to watch. It's so spectacular to watch, and even if you're not into the other features, it's so impressive and and visually arresting that it's it's a got to be a top mark. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you just follow like your your eyes just follow the camera and where it's going throughout the movie, oh, yeah. you know. And every cut and every like transition, it just works so well. Yeah, you may not like. Over, you may, for some reason, you know, not like the plot or some characters or some parts of that in the story, but you can't deny how it, how, how well it's put together. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what did you go for, Josh, with your atmosphere, Mark? I, I was going to go for ten, but I do agree though that the score was a little bit of a letdown for me. So I'm also at nine point five. That's fair. But everything else, like. Uh, Deacon cinematography, Mendy's direction, uh, just the look and feel of, of the film itself and how well it grounds itself visually, like in each location that it takes place in. You get a feel of establishment of everything going on, whether you're in London, whether you're in Scotland, whether you're in Shanghai or Macau. Every moment is felt yep. through through every apparatus they, the filmmaker has in this film and, and and maybe a little bit weak in the score mm -hmm. yeah yeah I, I agree um but at the same time i think that when i i think as a whole i think 9.5 is more than is uh not just uh, i want to give it a 10 but i agree with you on the score oh, give, it staying, 10, man. give it a 10 you know do what you want to do well to be honest you guys yeah fine i'll okay. give it a 10 right. okay. i'll give it a 10 all right <laughs> I, th I found Newman's score very serviceable and it had some great moments that made me, you know, realize, you know, how not great David Arnold became in the end. And I found that very refreshing. And uh, yeah. my, I guess I was fan service quite well in that respect. Well, that's OK, because, you know, the score, basically what you're saying is you, you can accept that there are limitations to things going on here, but the rest of it picks it all that's, up. And some of its parts, right? Yeah. Right. Okay, Jeff, uh, keep going, buddy. Uh, acting, story? So acting, I'd say 9.5 for me. I thought the acting was very, very well done. Uh, I really I really enjoyed everyone in the film. I loved, mm -hmm. you know, the nice uh, placement. What was the, the gentleman's name that plays Tanner? Is it that actor's name? Uh, Rory, Rory Kinnear. Rory Kinnear, he's great. I love that guy. I like his... He is I good. Like how he is he, good. His little roles in the, the recent Bond films with Craig... Have uh, I just I really appreciate him. Obviously, uh, Craig and uh, Judy Dench, fantastic. I really you can really see, like Craig really just he can really hone it in and like he he, obviously each of the films he's done is slightly different. Um, but this one I, it's definitely my favorite for him and the way he portrays his character in this film. This is my favorite one, um, of the ones that he's done so far. Uh, also, obviously, um, Ray Fiennes is fantastic as Mallory, uh, and obviously Javier Bardem. Like that opening shot where he's just walking, taking his time. Uh, I was captivated right off the bat. What an interesting character! Like just a, a weirdo, but man, great acting all across the board. So I give it nine point five. All right, uh, Jeff or Josh, sorry, uh, you're acting. Um, I actually gave acting ten. Okay. 
Um, I, 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 can't, I can't find a false performance in this whole movie. Like, I don't feel anything is forced. Like, um, I want to, we pointed out, you know, like Craig in particular, uh, how he shows a guy who, who in his own way, he's been betrayed because, you know, M forcing money pay to take the shot. But he contrasts him to, you know, to Silva, who goes completely deranged and Bond, who takes it like a man, you know. So it just kind of shows how the constitution mentally of both characters and Craig conveyed that well. And so did Javier Bardem, obviously, um, with maybe a little bit of ham. But I think he kind of brought it in with his derangement and, and made it realistic that way. Um, Judy Dench, of course, I mean, we'll give out all the awards to her. She was just fantastic and tragic in the movie. I also want to point out, even though she was small a small role in the film. I thought Berenice Marlowe, I thought she was great in her in in, in the in the short scenes yeah, that she, she had. Yeah. The scene in the casino was very compelling and mm. I really felt for her character. Yeah. Um in in in, in that sequence. Um and I even mentioned too uh, Patrice. I even even though he hardly said, he didn't say a word. I think oh, he, had, yeah. he had great body language and he was very menacing and, and but believable at the same time. Uh, ben Wishaw's Q, I thought was really good too. Yeah, I think maybe they're kind of overplaying him as Q a little bit. A little bit, but he was still great, and that doesn't to me doesn't affect the final score. And of course, Ray Fiennes, like oh, wow. a fantastic, a fantastic setup for a future yes. M, and just a conveyance. I like that moment where. Uh, Bond, you kind of see how Bond slightly misjudges him because when when he first meets Bond, he tells um, he tells him, "Oh, you know, I was just listening to the to the to the, to the prime minister rattle on," as if he and then I can see Craig's character interpreting, "Oh, this is him trying to, you know." Name drop? Uh, na- no, not not, <laughs> not name drop, but pretend to be like, oh, I'm one of the boys. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I gotta li- listen to the prime minister prattle oh, on yeah. as well, I right? Yeah, yeah. And I and I think that kind of sets up how Craig kind of misjudges him, and he's more loyal to M in in that particular m- moment. So it's just it's just stuff like that that I think this movie does so well. Um, and Eve, even though I think that she could have used a bit more stuff in the in the final act, yeah, like perhaps in the London subway sequence, like. I think she could they could do a little bit more with her. I do feel her arc is pretty believable in the end. Um, and I thought you know Naomi Harris did a great job in the she role. Yeah. Like she didn't really try to be an over the top kind of feminist hero, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, she, it wasn't about her being a woman. It was about her being an an, an operative, and that's what I really liked about it. Um, it was I guess it was gender neutral in terms of that. I guess you could say. I forgot to mention her, but she I I really appreciated her character yeah. as well. So uh, yeah. Acting to acting across the board, and of course, you know, and you got you know you got Elbert Finney in the end too, yeah. who's delightfully gruff. Uh, fun fact: um, they actually considered originally Sean Connery to play Kincaid, <laughs> but that would have been way too much fan service, yeah, so they turned way, against it. Way too much. They would have detracted from what yeah, we're supposed to be watching it, it, here. It Yes, it would have. It would have been, it would have been distracting as hell. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. so yeah, ten for me when it comes to acting. All right. Well, I went for a nine. Um, I. I liked it a lot. You know, I, I mean, I thought Judy Dench was the best thing about this film. I'd say Daniel Craig is the second best thing about this film. I'd say, though he has a much lesser role, uh, Ray Fiennes is the third best thing about this film. I would then put Javier Bardem fourth. I would then put uh, Rory Kinnear fifth. And everybody else I'm not really that interested in, to be honest. Patrice didn't do very much for me the way he did for you. I, I don't think he's anywhere near the cool, collected Robert Shaw, even in the quiet parts at the beginning uh, from Russia with Love, where he doesn't talk much, I think he's he's far far more interesting than Patrice. But Patrice is what he is, and he's not bad. He just I I don't think that his performance um, is really that that 
remarkable. Um, I don't feel as though Eve is that great in here either. I, and I mean, maybe it's the script's fault, not the actors, but they don't work her in the, with any interest. Like, is she supposed to be a love interest? Is this something that... Um, I don't. I don't really get where they're going with this. I, I would kind of preferred had she um, had she not been quite so awkward uh, with with Bond during the shaving stuff. Like I, I don't get what the, what they're playing at there. Is it is it yeah. new Lois Maxwell? Is it new flirtation? If it is, it's it's not coming across clear because I don't think that's a reveal that they needed to wait till the end. It, it was just kind of like, oh, here's a surprise for you at the end. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I just feel like that was a one thread a little bit too unnecessary um but she is a good actress don't get me wrong she's a very very attractive young woman as well um and i think she's great and she will be great as her role continues to evolve but i don't like the way the story worked her in so maybe it's not the actress's fault but i went for a nine which let's face it is still a very 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 good mark uh i just wasn't as exuberant as you guys because the the minor players were quite forgettable the major ones were, were quite quite big you know even though she was a minor player, you didn't find Berenice very interesting? No, or? nope, not at all. Um, because her, her character her character wasn't interesting to me. I didn't like, as I said earlier, the, the gender representation. I didn't like her being, um, you know, desperate for Bond's help in the same way. Like, I, I, I just didn't like... I, I don't doubt that powerful men still own women. Of course they do. You know, this is the world we live in. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there was no believability to her. I just felt like... I don't want Bond to be rescuing sick women anymore. Like I want something different, and I, yeah. And again, not her fault. She she was impressive no, yeah. in her scene, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's, 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 that's what I'm was referring impressive. to. Yeah. I, I'm referring to the to the acting. I totally agree with you on the status of her character. Yeah, hundred percent. Her acting, was but her acting, I thought was was very good. Yeah, it was good. And look, uh, you know, I, it was good, but it wasn't wasn't anything. I thought, you know, we it was it was incredible. Okay, all right. I, 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 don't know, I just found that I just found the tradition of dominance that she had in the beginning of the Macau sequence in the in the bar, and then to the basically her, her regressing into you know the scared girl that she yeah. is. I thought that was I thought that was really well done, and the yeah. terror in her face and stuff yeah. about that. I found after that scene though, I was less interested in her because she, well, because yeah. the movie was less interested in her That's, after after that, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I didn't see the dominance. She didn't dominate that scene with him. She, just, she, show, she shows up very, very attractive, very pretty dress on and, and says, I was interested in who was going to cash that chip. And like when she sees him, eyes him from a distance across the, you know, the, the busted window and in, uh, in Shanghai and the high rises there like that's I mean, she just stared like I, I don't think that what she's she she's a very attractive woman. But that doesn't make me think that she's a, you know, an incredible actress worth like a full marks or anything. I didn't say she's an incredible actress. I just thought that she was really good. That's all. Yeah, well, whatever. I'm, I'm look, a nine is a great mark, man. Like, I'm, I'm just, yeah. oh, oh yeah, I'm not going full ten. I don't think it was a perfectly no. acted movie. I did think that Javier Bardem hammed things up sometimes in a way yeah. that took me away from him being uh, a motivated killer, you know. Uh, and his cyber terrorism, he he didn't always execute his line deliveries with the, particularly when he's talking about the computer technology and stuff. He executed it as a guy who knows that other people do this work for him. Whereas I felt Daniel Craig's line deliveries were all emotionally on cue. And yeah. I thought that Bardem was a little hammy and a little loose in some places, but maniacal in the face when he needed to be. And he was impressive. Absolutely. But he's not my favorite Bond villain. He's not my favorite Bond villain performance. So... A nine overall on the strength of Judy Dench and Daniel Craig is is where I'm going with this one. 
All right, man. Fair enough. That's fair. So, how was the story? What was your final score for? How how many money pennies did you give the story? I gave the story eight. I did too. Yeah, I went the story eight. Um, I I thought it was a good, enjoyable story. I liked the character the, the character work. Uh, I didn't always feel the that that the whole scarf was knit though with Bond and M. Like I would have liked a few more personal moments, maybe. Uh, to explain how their history of trust has come about because a lot of it is just kind of kind of forced on us like we know yes, she trusts yeah. does she trust bond because she really trusts bond and as she dies in his arms she says well at least i got one thing right is that trusting him or is it that he's the guy i need because my career is under the microscope and no one believes that a guy deserves or that i can run people in the field anymore is he just the best of what she had available or is there a real yeah. personal love there i need to see more of that trust I agree. in the mothering relationship before i'm going to be like yeah craig's tears here are for her the person not for the woman who just uh kept giving him jobs when no one else would uh, okay, so for story, I gave it nine. I thought it was a really well done story. I thought I, I I really appreciated what it was. I liked the urgency of the story. I liked sort of it being like an attack on MI six, and, and just showing and then sort of showing that again the urgency and the um, the dirtiness of it all. Like you know, seeing like look at uh, you know we always see Bond and and MI five and MI six uh, agents are always you know well to do and they're having these meetings and but now. It's a, it feels a little different now that, you know, the headquarters was blown up and they have to go into these tunnels that were used in World War II. And it's kind of – it feels – she even said, like, you know, it's war. The story felt – there was an urgency to the story that I really appreciated and a darkness to the story and mm-hmm. also it, it lending to the old school of, you know, the 50 years of Bond. I enjoyed the story. I give it a nine. I was kind of going back and forth, but I, I, I would give it a nine. It's very solid for me. Yeah. And I think you're I right. gonna... the themes of old and new do play out really nicely. And as a film that is deliberately, you know, a 50 year anniversary of this. Yeah. I mean, it does do a lot of good things with theme that harken back to the, the canon. And I don't think nine is, is uh, too generous necessarily. It's just, I, I also felt for the lack of humor, there was a lack of humor here that I wanted a little bit more. I like my bond to have a bit more personality, but yeah. that's just, that's just me. Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean you had that cufflink moment, right? But uh, there was really <laughs> yeah. there was really kind of less than that. I like the I like I like the the dialogue between him and Money Penny, kind of flirtatious, and also kind of just like a bunch of agents having fun. Like I, I don't like I thought that part was done well, and I the thought bulldog. the bulldog. I funny. thought like yeah, the bulldog thing, and <laughs> I thought and you know and and I, I liked the kind of the buddiness of. Uh, Tanner and Q, I thought that worked well together. Yeah. Like, it seems like they're putting together a really good team, anyways. I would agree. Yeah, for sure. All right. So, yeah. So, I really give it overall an eight. Um, just on the basis, like you were saying, that the Craig and, uh, sorry, the Bond and M relationship, I think, would have to be much stronger to put it in a higher category of plot. And it seems to me that what really got in the way was a standard kind of story that Mendes and Co. kind of arted up. And it kind of disguised the fact that there wasn't really much of a story here and there was more of a character piece. But that still doesn't help the plot, in my opinion, and help because because you have to do um, that standard plot, then you don't have time to to do those kind of scenes necessary to make the story go, you know, uh, to make it bubble over, you know, than it normally would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see exactly what you mean. Well, I agreed with you, didn't I? Yeah. Ultimately. Cool. Yes, you did. So there's the money pennies. Right. So money penny scoring then. 
I went for a 26.5 overall for Skyfall, which is my highest mark. Um, you wow. went for a 28 overall, which is your highest mark. And Jeff is at a 28.5. These were our highest scores. I'm, gl- I'm, gl- I'm, I'm glad that... that, that um... I'm glad it came out that way because I think of so far of all the Bond movies I watched on, on, with their podcast so far, um, Skyfall was the one that entertained me and mesmerized me the most so far. Really? Okay. Cool. This I'm not is- saying that one is. I'm not saying it's better than the previous movies we watched. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to say is this is one here is just really kind of kind of just it just kind of it it opened things up to me as like a, a film and, and 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 analysis and whatnot that you can do with it. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, the numerical scoring is certainly going to encourage and inform our ranking overall, but it's not necessarily going to dictate it. No, of course not. Yeah, you can't define everything by numbers, you know, like we think we can, but really uh, personal experience, the subjectivity plays a big role. It does indeed, right. So that's that then, scoring. I'm a man. (laughs) So scoring done on Skyfall, a film we would definitely, definitely recommend. And now at this time of the show, normally what we do, folks, of course, is we, we cut to an interview with our grandmother, the figure responsible for getting us into Bond in the first place, at least me and Josh. And right. Our before, own M. Our own M, yes, you could say that. Um, our double O-G-O, as we've been calling her. Yeah. But unfortunately, this time around, uh, there's been an outbreak of uh, influenza, I guess. It's uh, just a seasonal flu, I think. But... The nature of a lot of these retirement homes, of course, uh, wherein our grandmother rests and watches films, is that you have to go into isolation when things like this happen. And uh, yeah, she's she's got a bit of a cold. I don't know if it's full-blown flu, but when I spoke to her earlier this week, Josh, she had said, no, I haven't watched the movie and I'm not going to have a chance to. And I felt it best, given given the steely determination of our M, to not push the subject. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because we we don't we don't want to invite her wrath. <laughs> we don't know. But uh, what we will do is feature her interviews, of course, as we keep going. But she she's declined to comment on Skyfall. All we have to share is the fact that she really likes this film. <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. So, what would Ian Fleming think of Skyfall? Well, what would Ian Fleming think of Skyfall? Let's stop and have a chat, shall we? Yeah, I think we can um, just pull over to the side here. Mm-hmm. Let's pull inner, over to the inner, side. Inner, inner metaphorical Aston Martin DB5. Well, you know, Skyfall is a film that did not exist and has no connection to the Ian Fleming oeuvre. No. Uh, there's no real connection, apart from a few plot drops here and there, to anything Fleming did. This was an original story built by screenwriters and uh, revised by different screenwriters. And obviously, it, its whole visual style it was not based on a particular Fleming story. So what I've decided to do with respect to the literary connections is pull out, because it features in Skyfall, the moment from You Only Live Twice, where M writes Bond's obituary. Okay. Because at the end of the novel, You Only Live Twice, James Bond is supposedly uh, dead on his mission to uh, to take out Blofeld or Shatterhand as he's known in the story Dr. By, the, by the Japanese which I believe is the working title of the new Bond film isn't it? 
Yeah, and just just in the world of James Bond, actually, um, they announced that uh, recent Oscar winner Rami Malek is to play the villain in the movie. Have they announced that? I believe so, yeah. Okay, I knew it was a rumor. I hadn't known it was released as news, but okay, cool. Well, there's more, you know, more quality acting, right, bringing into the series. Bond versus Freddie Mercury. I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, uh, we decided then, I decided to select, Josh, uh, the obituary that M writes of James Bond uh, because it's a scene in Skyfall. And it does, I mean, Skyfall is a film, isn't it, that, that does try to play with ideas of Bond's origin. You get some of it through the obit and some of it through character conversation and certainly the drive up to Scotland and the hint when Bond is being assessed by the psychiatrist uh, about Skyfall and that's when he shuts up, he doesn't, he doesn't play that game anymore. Uh, what did you make of all of that kind of origin story slash obituary, the biography elements of Bond in the film, first of all? I just think it was just they're trying to just to um, foreground, you know, bond the bond mythos as a whole in, in that sense. And I think by trying to go into his past, that was something they're interested in doing. Um, I believe in the novels, it's clear that bond is an orphan, is it not? Yes, it's made clear. Yeah, that his parents have died. Yes. OK, so at least they, they kind of now we just don't know whether what, what, what was his background, though, mm -hmm. you know, like, was he a rich guy or, or what was his family rich? Mm -hmm. And because if he, I mean, if this guy was an orphan um, of, of, of a person who owns an estate like that, like, you know, in Scotland, for example, um, would he become a ward of the state or would he just be staying out? You, 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 you know, like, I, mm -hmm. why would he end up becoming a member of like uh, a wet works for MI6? And not I, I, and not you know carrying on the family fortune. You know what I mean? Like it just I, I never quite got that. Well, let's see what Ian Fleming actually wrote about his character at the end of You Only Live Twice when James Bond was supposed as being uh, as having died in action. And it, it's it's also worth mentioning that Fleming wrote You Only Live Twice uh, in 1964. It was published. He wrote it just this was his last book before. His, right. Let me try that again. It's worth mentioning that Ian Fleming wrote You Only Live Twice while the Bond films were in um, in the, the cultural... Yeah, Goldfinger would, would, would be in the cinemas now. Yeah, that's right. So the fact that Fleming is writing at a time where Bond is a Scottish actor played into what he writes here about the character's backstory because you're, you're looking at You Only Live Twice, which is the 12th, James Bond novel, the last one Fleming writes in completion before his death. And it's at this stage, the earliest moment we learn anything about his heritage, his family, and it comes through this obituary that M writes at the end of the novel. And so there's a connection there between what the fans are watching as a Scottish actor portraying Bond and what we're getting now as a backstory to the literary character. So I just want to make you aware of that connection, okay? Of course. So this uh, printed in the Times. M writes, As your readers will have learned from earlier issues, a senior officer of the Ministry of Defense, Commander James Bond, is missing, believed killed, while on an official mission to Japan. It grieves me to have to report that hopes of his survival must now be abandoned. It therefore falls to my lot, as the head of the department he served so well, to give some account of this officer and of his outstanding services to his country. James Bond was born of a Scottish father, Andrew Bond of Glencoe, and a Swiss mother, Monique Delacroix, from the Canton de Vaud. 
His mm. father, being a foreign representative of the Vickers Armaments firm, his early education, from which he inherited a first-class command of French and German, was entirely abroad. When he was 11 years of age, both his parents were killed in a climbing accident in, uh, above Chamonix, and the youth came under the guardianship of an aunt, since deceased, Miss Charmaine Bond, and went okay. to live with her at the quaintly named hamlet of Pet Bottom near Canterbury in Kent. There, in small cottage hired by the attractive Duck Inn, his aunt, who must have been the mo a most erudite and accomplished lady, completed his education for, the, for an English public school, and at the age of 12, or thereabouts, he passed satisfactorily into Eton, for which college he had been entered at birth by his father. It must be admitted that his career at Eton was brief and undistinguished, and after only two halves, as a result, it pains me to record of some alleged trouble with one of the boy's maids, his aunt was requested to remove him. She managed to obtain his transfer to Fetis, his father's old school. Here, the atmosphere was somewhat Calvinistic, and both academic and athletic standards were rigorous. Nevertheless, though inclined to be a solitary man by nature, he established some firm friendships among the traditionally famous athletic circles at the school. By the time he left, at the early age of 17, he had twice fought for the school as a lightweight and had, in addition, founded the first serious judo class at a British public school. By now it was 1941, and by claiming an age of 19 and with the help of an old vicar's colleague of his father, he entered a branch of what was subsequently to become the Ministry of Defense. To serve the confidential nature of his duties, he was accorded the rank of lieutenant in the special branch of the RNVR, and it is a measure of the satisfaction his service gave to his superiors that he ended the war with the rank of commander. It was, mm. about, this, it was about this time that the writer became associated with certain aspects of the ministry's work, and it was with much gratification that I accepted Commander Bond's post-war application to continue working for the ministry in which, at the time of his landed disappearance, he had risen to the rank of principal officer in the civil service. The nature of Commander Bond's duties with the ministry, which were, incidentally, recognized by the appointment of CMG in 1954, must remain confidential, nay secret, but his colleagues at the ministry will allow that he performed them with outstanding bravery and distinction, although occasionally through an impetuous strain in his nature, with the streak of the foolhardy that brought him in conflict with higher authority. But he possessed what almost amounted to the Nelson touch in moments of the highest emergency, and he somehow contrived to escape more or less unscathed from the many adventurous paths down which his duties led him. The inevitable publicity, particularly in the foreign press, accorded some of these adventures, made him, much against his will, something of a public figure, with the inevitable result that a series of popular books came to be written about him by a personal friend and former colleague of James Bond. If the quality of these books, or their degree of veracity, had been any higher, the author would certainly have been prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. It is a measure of the disdain in which these fictions are held at the Ministry that action has not yet, I emphasize the qualification, been taken against the author and publisher of these high-flown and romanticized caricatures of episodes in the career of an outstanding public servant. It only remains to conclude this brief in memoriam by assuring his friends that Commander Bond's last mission was one of supreme importance to the state. Although it now appears that, alas, he will not return from it, I have the authority of the highest quarters in the land to confirm that the mission proved 100% successful. It's no exaggeration to pronounce unequivocally that through the recent valorous efforts of this one man, the safety of the realm has received mighty reassurance. James Bond was briefly married in 1962 to Teresa, only daughter of Marc-Ange Draco of Marseille. The marriage ended in tragic circumstances that were reported in the press at the time. There was no issue of the marriage, and James Bond leaves, so far as I am aware, no living relative. M.G. writes, 
I was happy and proud to serve Commander Bond in close capacity during the past three years at the Ministry of Defense. If indeed our fears for him are justified, may I suggest these simple words for his epitaph? Many of the junior staff here feel they represent his philosophy. Quote, I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. End quote. So, what would Ian Fleming think of Skyfall? I think he would like this relationship with M that I remember when we were doing our, our book survey, Josh, you spoke you spoke quite fondly of the, the fathering, the lack, as an orphan, Bond's need to have that sort of parental figure. M sort of um, identifies that role for him. And true. And I think I think Fleming would appreciate that because that is there in the character. You know that that need for yes. uh, reassurance, that need for acceptance, that he does so much of his work for M's not happiness but uh, acceptance. You know and uh, praise, I guess. Yeah, I'm kind of on the road to Damascus here. I, I feel that um, in a way, what they've done instead of like having the paternal. M from the books, they have a maternal M in in, in this film in particular, mm -hmm. um, kind of conveying what Fleming may have wanted for that relationship between Bond and his superior. Yeah, it's just like a gender swap essentially. Yeah, that's that's essentially what it is. And you know, because Skyfall is original in so many ways, uh, narratively speaking, there's not a lot of source material that we can draw from. But I figured yeah. that that little bit because it is of import to the film and certainly to this text, it did work. And it's neat to get Fleming's own little break of the fourth wall there, you know? Yeah, that was, that was fun. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. sure he probably had a bit, of, a bit of glee on his, mischievous glee on his face when he wrote that. And, you know, let's not make too much of the whole Scottish thing, because I do feel as though it comes back to what I was saying at the outset of that excerpt, that Connery is Bond by this point. And true, he's a Scottish guy. And so if we're now still reading James Bond stories and learning about his past, then we need to have some connection to Scotland that connects with what we're seeing in celluloid, right? Well, one thing to point out, too, is that a lot of famous members of the British Empire over the centuries, you know, they were also Scotsmen. Mm -hmm. So as much as, you know, I'm not trying to make any kind of controversy here saying, you know, that, you know, Scotland is England and England is Scotland or anything like that. But I think Scotland is very important to the roots of England as a whole. And another literary, um, you know, hero, Bond's predecessor, really, Sherlock Holmes, was created by a Scotsman. So, I mean, it's all connected in some way, in my opinion. <laughs> it's all connected? And, what do you mean? It? And not only that, but the Flemings, they were Scottish merchants as well. That's right. So, that, that's right. And what you're saying here about the Flemings, I, I would like to ask you a, a little bit more about, because in the obituary and also in what we learn about Bond and Spectre, um, there's this, this whole thing with his mother, right? Fleming had this thing with his mother. Yes. Uh, she was he, very controlling. And, she was very uh, controlling. And he also did get in trouble, didn't he, while he was at college? Uh, yes. Fleming did himself. So, I mean, Fleming's Sandhurst, writing... I, Sandhurst, I think it was, wasn't it? Was it not for a dalliance with a, with a young woman? Uh, well, he ended up getting, um, if I'm not mistaken, he ended venereal. up getting like venereal, venereal disease, yeah. Well... I mean, can you say anything? Can you shed any light on this mother relationship that Fleming had and struggled with as a young guy um, that might help to reinforce or maybe at least rub shoulders with what we see from M and Bond in such a maternal theme in the film? Well, um, I mean, he lost his father in the Great War. And then, it, then so his mother was, was widowed and, and, you know, and, and she had her own set of affairs as well. Um, his like half sister was a, I think she was a famous violinist or something like that. If I'm not cellist, mistaken, cellist, I think. Yeah, cellist. Sorry, yeah. I know that every time Bond got into trouble, his mom 
got him out. And um, sorry, whenever Fleming got into trouble, his mother got him out. I mean, and when he did get into trouble, she made sure that he was controlled. Like that's why she sent him to Kitzbühel, Austria, you know, in, in the skiing school, which was basically kind of like a reform school for young men, you know, uh, to get prepared for to get, you know, whatever wild oats they had in their, in their blood, whatever, you know, that hothead, um, elixir that was in that, that's in their blood. I mean, that's what that reform school was for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this led him eventually, you know, into his career in, in, in journalism in the, uh, thirties. Now, prior to him going into the journalism, he did, uh, travel through Europe extensively, um, you know, while he studied and he had many affairs and even came to a point with a Swiss girl where he was going to get married and his mom broke that off as well. Mm-hmm. So she's probably been a controlling force in his life. And I guess after she passed and whatnot, um, it was probably that part was missing in, in him that, you know, that female figure that he had and whatnot. And that really indicates to me that there is some sort of, I'm not going to say Oedipal, but yeah. there's definitely some obsession with mother or maternal love that Ian Fleming's always been looking for. Well, you know, it's, it's, this has given me the idea to go back to our first episode when we were looking at the literary gun barrel and looking down the literary gun barrel, rather. Right. And on that other show, that's right. On, on another program. And maybe, um, although our, we're sharing snippets of the source material uh, for the films that we are discussing in these special episodes that we're dropping every six weeks or so, maybe I'll go back and have a look at your biography points on Fleming and share some of those too, if I can easily squeeze them in, because you did do a lot of good work on this subject of his relationship with his mother. And it, it strikes me as interesting that while Bond's hang up seems to be with his father as the literary character, the the cinematic bond of Craig to M is more like Fleming to his mum. You know, there's, there's maybe something there without without yeah. trying to pigeonhole a relationship. We're not trying to make yes. connections, but, you know, it's there. There's there's the seedlings are, are already there, that the foundation, the foundation is there. Yeah, it's it's definitely there for sure. I agree. And it makes me think more and more about, you know, the video for Skyfall and even more of those thematics and symbolism that was put in there as well. Um, this is just another example, you know, of, of another theme that the movie uses. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're, we're still discussing it and kind of extrapolating it more and more, it seems that, you know, they were, de- they were definitely bang on in what they were trying to do. All right, so here we go, guys. Time to roll the roulette for our next film. Let's see what film is coming next. Guys, what are you thinking? It's gotta be right. Yeah, you say that every week. Well, let's find out. It's hesitant to drop. (laughs) Spot the guy that needs to go, huh? (laughs) Alright, here we are. We're settling down, we're settling down. Gentlemen, we're looking at Bond 18. Our next film, Red 18. So looking here at my score, and I can tell you that 18 is Tomorrow Never Dies. Going back to the world of Pierce. It really doesn't like Roger Moore. It really doesn't. (laughs) Tomorrow Never Dies is our next film. (laughs) Okay. All right, so we're going to be taking a look at uh, Evil Media. Yeah. Evil media, yeah. Right fake, on. News. Fake, fake, fake news. Fake news. <laughs> this will be a fun one to do, won't it, in the context of our world today? Yeah. Oh, it will for sure, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, cool. Right, Jeff, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll catch up with you soon. Sounds good. Toodaloo. 
And that's it, you know, from one film without source material direct to another. And, yeah, I recall uh, this being one of my favorite of, of the Brosnan era. Well, we'll have to wait and see, won't we? It's, see how it holds up, I suppose. I remember, uh, I remember, I remember that uh, the Rupert Murdoch-like villain that, um, uh, oh my God, I'm passing his name, that uh, Jonathan Price plays. I remember him being quite uh, fun. Um, but we'll have, uh, to, we'll have to wait and see. A couple of weeks' yeah. time, we can thrash it all out. Absolutely. Well, Josh, with Jeff away, it's down to us to sign off the show. Any last remarks on Skyfall or indeed where we're going now with Tomorrow Never Dies? Hmm. I'm thinking of that scene where the psychologist is interviewing Bond. It's like, any last thoughts on Skyfall? Hmm. No. Done. Yeah, I think that's what it was, wasn't it? It was done, exactly. All right. All right. Well, look, uh, thanks very much, guys. This was good fun. And we'll come back and do Tomorrow Never Dies in a couple of weeks' time, which I'm sure will bring us even more fun. We've moved from the world of WikiLeaks and cyber terrorism into the world of fake news. The, in other words, the world we live in today. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, tomorrow never dies. But in fact, this whole conversation is fake news. <laughs> don't, sh- don't, don't give that away. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> Quiet. All right, pal, catch Next you time. soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>